I am the prince of this city. You have violated my laws. I'm Matthew Dawkins. And I'm Chris Spivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today we're going to talk about most of Kindred the Embraced here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to, actually we're pretty close to Halloween now by the time you're listening to this, so this has been our fun little October dive into horror, although that's increasingly questionable affectation for this one of shows. Well, it's definitely horrific. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, Matthew doesn't know this, but uh, before this we actually watched uh, Forever Night, so we are are primed for this level of of vampire nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... uh... Uh, I'd just like to open by saying, I mean, this show is a fine example of how a well-written script combined with avant-garde shooting, classically trained (laughs) acting, and a robust, captivating background plot from one of the most popular role-playing games doesn't yet exist on television. Yeah. This, I mean, good God, this, I mean, I hate to uh, ruin the lead, as it were, but uh, this is a terrible show. You're you're tipping your hand real early on this. Um, Uh, I I know that it's not a new report to think that, (laughs) but watching this wasn't enjoyable, and and further, it made me hate myself. Uh, and I, I think I, I'm probably going to use the word terrible a lot in this episode that you very kindly invited me on to. You could have had me on to discuss Farscape, Flash Gordon, <laughs> The Leftovers, Lost, Deadwood, The Wire, any of these shows I've loved dearly. And instead I watch this shit. Uh, <laughs> it's because thanks, thanks. we want to challenge you to find a new word every single time that's not terrible. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's, let's strain my vocabulary then. Um, uh, uh, Matthew has definitely he tipped uh, his hand a bit on this, but um, yes, normally when we invite uh, a guest onto the podcast, it's to, hey, you know, someone really loves the show, so they can kind of talk about it. That's not what we did this time because it would have been very difficult to find someone like that. Um, but also, to be honest, it's a case of this is very obviously a show based off Vampire the Masquerade. All three of us have worked on Vampire the Masquerade. So it's the let's let's talk about this show. We're going to talk about probably the RPG at some point in time. Um, I, I will say, since we're starting off strong with this, um, <laughs> my, my thesis for Kindred the Embraced is that... Um, Yes, it is not good, but the reasons why it is not good by fandom consensus are usually the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, a lot of the reasons that people who are fans of Man Great say the show is bad are actually reasons why I think the show could have been okay. Um, and also, I feel like this show is caught between two poles. Um, if the show had been made five years earlier in either direction and a slightly different focus, it could have actually been a decent show. Um, I feel like it was stuck between what it was, what had worked before, and what it was trying to do, and just missing both <clears throat> spectacularly. I would say the show would work 
even in the time period where it was made, if it wasn't in the hands of Aaron Spelling, who was trying to make Vampire 9210 Beverly Hills. Right. It has a lot of those vibes sort of ingrained into the show. And then they said, you know what? Maybe if we'd added vampires in it, we could get some more sexiness, and that would bring more viewers in to watch it. Uh, see, and I feel like it's uh, failed because <laughs> it tries too hard to incorporate too much from Vampire the Masquerade. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, I've been essentially shitposting on my YouTube channel making various Kindred the Embraced meme videos <laughs> since watching this. Uh, there's three of their as of time of recording. I'm sure there will be more. And the most the common consensus from viewers is, lol, this show is trash. And um, I wish they'd tried harder to make it more like Vampire the Masquerade. And I feel right. like that's actually incorrect. I think where it fails uh, most consistently is when it tries to be Vampire the Masquerade. Uh, mm-hmm. The fact that they are incorporating too broad a uh, a basket of themes um i mean i know we will be going into some of the episodes in 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 specific but to use an example and you can tell it's sort of pilot uh sort of pilot quality dialogue let's dump as much exposition and world building on the viewers as possible in, in one foul fell swoop uh, the the uh sort of seneschal primogen archon all wrapped up in <laughs> one character uh who kind of lingers around like a richard o'brien vincent price character in the first episode uh says at one point they are trying to provoke you to frenzy. They want you to expose your beast, and it's <laughs> and you know, let us go to the haven and meet the rest of the kindred. <laughs> and uh, okay, how many terms from the little from the lexicon that appears in every edition of Vampire the Masquerade can you right. throw in here? Right. Because I don't know, is there some kind of quota that you have to hit with every episode to make it still be connected to vampire? And but it's. Oh, sorry, carry on. Sorry. Yes, you go ahead. (laughs) I'm trying harder not to interrupt, interject, because Eddie has gotten used to it over the course of the past two years. But you're you're our guest. You're in our virtual home. I feel that I should give you five more minutes of grace. Only five. Which well, means fuck me, but you're okay. <laughs> yeah, the I mean, the main issue, as Eddie will be able to attest from being on other podcasts with me, but the Onyx podcast is usually if I get started, especially if I start ranting, uh, I find it very difficult to stop. So I invite you to interrupt. I, I will take that gracefully. Um, but yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, Having yeah. said that, I am now inter- inter- interrupting. Go for it. <laughs> What, Eddie? Come on! Your five minutes I, I, have expired. <laughs> I may have sped it up a little bit. Um, part of it is, I agree. The the lexicon is on display, but you're also building something for normies that mm. don't have a lot of exposure to it, and it's in the '90s. So mm. there's even less. I'm not gonna say there's less knowledge. There's less public engagement with it. So you need to layer all that on very heavily, and then hopefully, if you had multiple seasons, you could pull back on that. And as this masterpiece, of course, should have gotten multiple seasons. We didn't get to see that in action. So, I mean, some people think so. And there are plenty of TV shows that have boasted a rather lukewarm first season. Uh, Eddie and I yep. were talking about Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, 
there, oh, there are some the hits. There are some hits in those first seasons, but generally it is the finding the feet season and delivering a fairly mediocre, palatable quality so that you get as many viewers as possible and you don't offend many people start using too much in universe terminology for instance and i think that's um where uh, i struggle with the sheer volume of vampire dump that is injected into the first episode first couple of episodes but mainly the pilot uh, as i feel it's better, much like when running the game, to seed information, uh, keep it intimate, keep it sort of tightly wrapped around a few characters rather than saying, here's a protagonist who is really, really irritating in the first episode and in a, in a relationship with zero chemistry with Ellen Tai from Battlestar Galactica. And <laughs> if you hadn't said it, I was. <laughs> and and his dokes, uh, the wonderful Eric King. Eric King is always fantastic <laughs> yes. uh, from from Dexter. Uh, so we so yeah, we get to see the cops. We get to see the love triangle. We mm. get to see the prince. We get to see the primogen. We get to see additional vampires beyond that. Oh, yeah. sorry, the primogens. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, gangrels, toreadors. Uh, I, I cut the S off everything but Malkavians. Were they really gangrels, I ask you? <laughs> really? Well, some people would say that, like, say not. Uh, those commenters on my videos are very keen to point out. And it, it, it speaks to the powerful influence of uh, the the visual depictions in the vampire rule books uh, because people look at the Bruja in Kindred the Embraced and they say Bruja shouldn't be wearing suits acting like enforcers they should be bikers <laughs> you know they should all be um, black American dudes with baseball bats because that's what Theo Bell looks like in, in the right. rule book and then they say and Gangrel shouldn't be bikers that should be the Bruja Gangrel should be out in the well no that's actually the one thing I don't take issue with I really yeah, like that the Bruja are undermining the Ventru uh, in a in a way that is politically interesting, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I like that they aren't just conforming to the book stereotypes. Now it goes quite extreme at points with I don't know the Nosferatu with thaumaturgy and so on, but if you are really trying to work that within the Vampire the Masquerade mold, it can still work. It's just an out-of-clan discipline. Uh, right. the, the not conforming to stereotypes is the least of this series' issues, in my yeah, opinion. I agree. It, oh, and yes. um, one thing that I find interesting in retrospect, um, and, and some listeners, we may be going a little bit specific. We'll try to bring it back when we can. But, um, uh, I think uh, our listener can keep up. That's fair. Um, <laughs> it was probably me. Uh, true. <laughs> Is that um, when this first came out, I, I know I bounced off it for a lot of reasons. One of them was that the clans were, were kind of simultaneously family and political unit. Um, and there's only five of them. And so, like, you know, get into, you know, but there's 67 and blah, blah, blah. Um, but now that Requiem exists, looking back on it, you know, it's like, okay, actually, I see a much more kind of a Requiem, Vampire Requiem style structure happening here. 
Um, and so I think it was smart to cut it down to five clans for lots of reasons. Um, it, part of which being both Malkavians and Tremere would be difficult to kind of make work on screen, especially in an already heavily info-dumpy info episode. Mm. Um, the pilot introduces 10 characters with regular speaking parts. Yeah. Um, I mean, so there's a lot going on. And I felt like five was a good number of, for, to create interesting politics. Now, the show completely squanders that, and we'll go into that. But at the start, it's like, again, <laughs> that that's not the thing that I have issue with. Um, it, it's, there's, this is very clearly a show that's, isn't quite sure what it wants to do. Um, like I said, Chris and I, we, we watched um, Forever Night before this. Forever Night uh, came, started out uh, four years before this. Had three seasons? Four seasons? Three. Um, three seasons. Um, I went to, ended, didn't, well, technically, first season ended for a like, stint, came back. Well, right. Again, ended again, but got picked up by USA. Recapped, yeah. the, the greatest network in the world that had all the best... Uh, late night Friday horror scream queen movies. If anyone is of a certain yes. age, remember those. Yes. Uh, and forever night is just like, no vampires doing this kind of stuff is just nonsense. And we're going to lean into that. Right. It's like, we have a vampire cop and a vampire DJ. And that's just, that's just cool. And we're not going to explain it. We're just, this is going to happen. Um, and, and their mythology was just all over the map. Right. And now you have a, a very solid mythology. And I feel like if they had leaned into, but this is ludicrous, I, I think it could have gone better, right? Um, uh, and so, yeah, of course the Bruja are mobsters. Yeah, that's great. You know, of course the gang girl are all one entire biker gang. Um, and, the, you know, the Torrider openly own a club and there's constantly fights in the club. And yet somehow there's a masquerade that makes sure humans don't notice this, even though everyone on the show knows, right? If they had just leaned into that more, I think. And been like, no, this is just nonsense, and we're just gonna go for it. Um, and you see slivers of that, but but the flip side is you're right. Like there's this dense mythology, which they do strip a chunk out to their credit. Um, but everyone plays it so straight. Everyone's playing it so serious, and and, and not even in a melodramatic way. It's just it's it, it's very kind of reduced and damped down. Um, and like everyone's kind of just delivering their lines in a pretty flat way. And so it's like, no, you should be like devouring the scenery, right? You should be just going for it. Now I really wish that we had watched Blood Ties before Forever Night, just to give you another point of reference, if uh, anyone remembers that that little gym. It's a, I actually don't. It's a cop and her vampire buddy who no. helps her odd cases. I want to say it's a show made in, was made in Canada in the 1990s. I may, have down, watched, right? <laughs> I may have watched a lot of vampire television. So, um, but that would have given another solid base to see how vampires are being portrayed. Then compared against forever night. And then contrasted with this. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you, it's difficult now, given the sheer proliferation of vampire media post underworld, I guess that, uh, to to look at this in any way charitably. Right. Because even though I think shows like True Blood had peaks and troughs, it's a it's a consistently well produced show. Even if you don't necessarily like what's on the screen, it's well produced. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, they, um, and maybe this is a question of my taste, uh, they do it quite well with keeping the spotlight focused on a bare handful of characters yeah. and going through character journeys until the seasons start expanding out. Now, oddly, the show when I was watching Kindred of the Embarrassed, because this is the first time I've ever seen it, I, I, I never sought it out before. Ooh. And, wow. and I regret that because I would have put material from this in Beckett's Jihad Diary. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, it, I think it's maybe one of the only uh, vampire touchstones we didn't put in uh, Beckett's. <laughs> and yet, yeah, yeah, when I was watching this, there was a show I was comparing it to in my head, thinking, you know, if you'd done it like this, it would have been so much better. And it was a really odd show to go for. It was Mortal Kombat Conquest. Oh my god. Okay, <laughs> you have to explain that one. <laughs> Which is a show I imagine the vast majority of people have never seen. <laughs> it was a show, I guess, along the Hercules and Xena mm-hmm. style of, you know, a new adventure every week. But it had a central trio of characters, only uh, one of whom was in the video games. And every single episode, they would encounter a different part of, I guess, the Mortal Kombat universe. And occasionally, Shang Tsung would reappear from, you know, every other episode, and Shao Kahn would always be there in the background. But there is a Scorpion episode. There is a Sub-Zero episode, and so on. And so if I was wanting to expand out and and slowly reveal to people what Vampire the Masquerade is via Kindred the Embrace... Clearly, this isn't what happened. They don't slowly reveal anything. No. It would be starting with, yeah, hell, start with the prince. Start with the cop Jagoff no one likes. And, <laughs> I don't know, pick another character. Uh, Eddie Fiore, so you actually get a different perspective on things if you want it to be oh. uh, all male uh, at, at the uh, front. It is the mid-90s. Right. And slowly, they are occasionally having to work together, even though they don't like each other because there's this threat coming in. Then you can introduce a Tremere because it makes right. sense as a novelty. It's one of the right. ways I I don't actually object, for instance, to the way the Asamite is portrayed. Yeah, uh, yeah. it's yeah. it's a bit exoticism, yes. but but they it's the same exoticism as the blood alchemy. Uh, mm. And the fact that they don't do that, um, I guess, steady expansion of the world and instead just expect you to consume it all and then be along for the ride makes, for me, the, the, the series is completely the wrong way round. Yeah. Uh, and again, we're talking about, I'm talking about failings. And I think that's one of the the biggest ones this show has. If it had been more like Mortal Kombat Conquest, a series that also only had one season, it would have been <laughs> a true triumph. So in short, though, for people that may not be familiar with that, they should have taken the MCU approach over the DCEU. Yes. Where, yes, definitely. Where they that's go the- one solo hero mm-hmm. and person to build on rather than here's a team, yeah. go forth with them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that would have been a much better analogy than Mortal Kombat Conquest, uh, but... Uh, I, I enjoyed the journey, Matthew, so that's <laughs> that's what I want to say. I mean, but no would, one else would. would. <laughs> that's what we're here for. I, I am here to, to help the, the common viewer and listener 
jump on to these unusual side tangents that you took us that you'll take us on. Chris and says, then Eddie never is there before in the past. Of course not. <laughs> I, I am the epitome of professionalism on this podcast. I do all the tech work behind the scenes. I am the person that updated Matthew on all the steps of the podcast. I just did not bring him in unknowingly or what to expect because that is my job. Uh, so another things that are lies. Um, <laughs> uh, no. Uh, um, so we talked 20 minutes. I want to briefly give some context for the show as a whole before we dive in. Um, what's that? Uh, Matthew alluded to it. Um, this was a show that was options from the tabletop role-playing game um, by Aaron Spelling's company uh, because he wanted to move into supernaturally tinged soap opera. Uh, Aaron Spelling primarily did a lot of primetime soap operas in the 80s and 90s is what he was kind of known for at the time. Uh, we have talked briefly in the past that supernatural soap operas is not a new genre in the mid nineties. Um, dark, dark shadows is something that we've, we've alluded to and maybe make do at some point. Um, but I don't know how I feel about talking about Johnny Depp though. Oh God. Oh God. I forgot about that. <laughs> I, had, I had literally removed that from my memory until now. Thank you. Um, so That's what I'm so thanks for. for that. Uh, but, um, uh, there are lots of reasons why the show did not last the episodes it had. Uh, but one of the big ones is, of course, the the actor who played Julian Luna died tragically uh, during the production. Uh, and well, so I, I know a little bit about the show because I watched it week to week when it aired. So did I'm I. not going to lie. And I, I enjoyed it at the time because I was a, a young Chris and I didn't have my established taste in. And it was just nice seeing vampires and something yeah. on the screen for that I've played before. Absolutely. And. Some of the, and I may have done a little reading on the side, but a lot of it was that also the show was built almost in a Sopranos model with how you have a primarily male cast, your, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, your female or femme presenting cast are primarily only love interest and they're obsessed with only being in relationships. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of divided your audience about what they were going to look for and try to engage with in the show. Because if you're trying to present a soprano style show, but with a soap opera lens over it, you're losing viewers there. I, I'm focusing more on the viewer account they would have gotten. Right. And the yeah. show itself was kind of canceled after first season. And then there was talk about it coming back. And that's unfortunately when the actor who played Julian died was that during oh, that time was, period. I thought it was while it was being shown. That was my mistake. I think it was when they were trying, when they were, it convinced people that maybe we could give it a second season. That's when he unfortunately passed away. Okay. In a motorcycle accident, I think. Yeah, it was a motorcycle accident. I know that part. And I think any show that stars the Soul Man should definitely not be aired, and that is someone who should not be working. The Soul Man? Oh, you've never seen that atrocious, racist piece of shit movie called Soul Man starring C.S. Thomas Howe, who pretends to be a black person to go to affirmative action to get into a college because he didn't have enough grades to make it? You didn't Oof. sever that that movie from the eighties that I, I, like, I no. couldn't see through the Nosferatu makeup. To, <laughs> to oh no, it. no, he's the cop. He's, he's Frank. The cop. Oh yes, no, you're right, you're right. I'm getting my he's actors. Frank. Sorry, I'm insulting Daedalus. <laughs> yeah, um, how dare you? I mean, well, I, I, if if we're gonna um, quickly throw on uh, C.S. Thomas Howell, um, good grief. 
the you, you bring your best to a pilot, don't you? You you're thinking that <laughs> I want I he want doesn't. steady income. Acting is a tenuous profession at best. No one likes to work the regional theatres. You want a show with a season, maybe two, regular income, you know, get a bit of rent saved up. <laughs> he just walks into this and is as wooden as any performance. Uh, the, the, I mean, uh, he might as well be scenery because people basically move around him and <laughs> he occasionally reacts. His, his acting is beyond awful in the first episode. Again, it's it's weird. The first episode is such a bag of shit. <laughs> uh, because the, the... And again, it's a, it's in a tale as old as time, series shows do find their feet as they go on uh the actors find their rhythm the directors too and the like, writing with it mm-hmm. and the, the the pilot has some performances that are serviceable to strong yeah i mean i don't think anyone would argue that julian luna is really the character we care about uh, despite some odd choices throughout. And some of the other Primogen as well are interesting. But yeah, Frank, Detective Frank, I, I wish Eric King had been the lead uh, oh. cop in this. I wish we'd had um, a, a, a confident, a vocally confident uh, African American male performer yeah. leading the the cop duo, and have Thomas Howell be the ghoul or whatever he is. You know, right. yes. he, he can do the vacant stare. Um, he doesn't even oh. have to act. Apparently, he just has <laughs> it. Uh, and yeah, Eric King. I I think again on the things that could have saved the show if Eric King had been the lead. Boom, and you also hit another demographic there. Yeah. So yes. Which, um, but, sorry, one, one more point, Eddie. I think that before you go on, I don't have any proof. I don't, I haven't read this, but I want to say that after the pilot, I feel there were rewrites. So that's why Julian became the focus of the show yeah. over Frank. Oh, yeah. I think that is almost definitely the case. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things where Frank is positioned as the protagonist in the first episode. People go back to the writer's room. They have a crisis meeting. <laughs> right. They, these are the rushes. This this is what we've got, but look at the prince. I mean, he's supposed to be the antagonist. I think we can save this, right? And yeah, yeah. And then just, it becomes so, Julian's story. Since we're talking about the pilot, I'll just go ahead and, and uh, recap. Well, real well quick. No, the, you wanted to give back history. I'm sorry to to interrupt and totally derailed you. So, and, so please, and, as I am, but I will <laughs> keep doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we apologize for it, it makes it better, right? Exactly. No. no. Finish your thought, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you were saying, you were saying, uh, show, right. I'm surprised that Tori Spelling wasn't in it. That is my last joke before you go on. So episode one, the original saga, um, a police detective, Frank Kohanek, has learned that vampires exist, but doesn't realize he's surrounded by them. The businessman who he suspects is a mobster, Julian Luna, is the prince of the San Francisco kindred clans. Frank's girlfriend, Alexandra, is... Julian's ex and also a vampire. When she reveals herself breaking the masquerade, her unlife is forfeit. Um, mm. That's a pretty short summary of what happened because, as Matthew points out, there's a lot of nonsense that happens in this episode. 
Yeah. It, um, I think they call it melodrama. My my fellow no, vampire it's writers, it's, it's you should know about good. melodrama, uh, and tension, and horror, and suspense. I sir, I sirs, am insulted by both of you, and how uh, quickly uh, you throw this show under the bus. Good I'll tell you what, melodrama is vehicle. blowing the episode's budget on a sweeping helicopter shot that lasts <laughs> the first three minutes uh, while using day for night lenses. Uh, I mean, uh, they really got a nice shot of the bay. Uh, because of course this is pre-drone, so that costs a bit, and right. I can only—I bet they had to do it a few times as well. Because the footage, th- those actors on the rooftop when this episode first starts, and you've got the vampires brawling on the roof, Ooh. as the helicopter cameraman is flying in towards the rooftop, you can actually just about see them waiting there for their cue. So there's <laughs> there's someone just behind one of the air conditioning units or something who shouts, okay, the helicopter can see you now, action. And then they start running around, but they're not even chasing each other at that point. They're just meandering about because I'm guessing they probably thought, no one's going to be able to see it. It's supposed to be dark. Right. And so they run around in figure of eights oh, until God. the camera gets close enough to them that you can, and then they think, oh shit, we'd better pursue each other now. Um, <laughs> and if, again, if that was the best take, I, I would hate to wonder what the worst ones look like. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I'm sure whoever the director was realized that they watched <laughs> the first Star Trek motion picture and yes. they gave a sweeping 10 minute view of the Enterprise. And they're mm. like, that was epic. If I did the same thing for this opening of the show, regardless of yeah. Frank's acting, people will love this series. I mean, that was a natural leap to make, wasn't it? I'm right. sure the director was thinking of the motion picture uh, while playing <laughs> the rooftop brawl. <laughs> and, and the worst part is, like, it's not a bad instinct, right? Like, starting in the middle of an incident. Um, and then figuring out throughout the course of the pilot how the incident got here while the context stuff is, is not a bad draw, right? And, mm. and certainly murdering a guy who bursts into flame on a rooftop is kind of an interesting way of doing it. Because yeah. something you have to kind of, of – what this show is trying to do, and it's doing it so badly, is the show's Kindred the Embraced. And they always use the word kindred. They actually don't say the word vampire until like two-thirds of the way in the show. I actually checked. Mm. Um, uh, and none of the – vampire characters ever use the word vampire. It's always the, the mortals that use vampire. Um, and so the idea is mystery of who are these people? What's going on? Even though it's blatantly clear what they are, right? It's like not at all a mystery. Oh, they're vampires. Like anyone who coming into this cold, I'm pretty sure within five minutes going, oh, hey, they're vampires. No, I, I have a, a very incisive point about that, which I won't get into now, but okay. remind me when we get to the coroner scene. I was actually about to move to the coroner scenes, what? but... You're saying that they'd say they're obviously vampires, but if people are if vampires are running around the day, wouldn't even the the common person go shouldn't they burst into flames? And then they did, and then well, they don't. Later in the mm, series, they definitely do right, not. But in it, this in this scene, Stevie Ray bursts into flames. Yeah, the trick seems to be if you've got a weather vane stuck in you, <laughs> you you will burst into flames. It's like a propellant. The sun does nothing except make you feel uncomfortable. But if there's a satellite dish embedded in your chest, at that point, well, all bets are off. It's like a superconductor for solar energy. I also like how his head was perfectly fine, but the rest of him was burning, so you could yes! say, down my yes. I said that. Uh, that, that, that was something I noted as well. The 
you know, they made the effort of putting the flames in the foreground of the camera shot. Right, which it, I you know. And it looks better than an Adobe Adobe effect, you know. <laughs> um, but you can also see none of the flames are touching him. So at that point, I'm wondering, what is on fire? If the flames are in front of his head and we're seeing it from the side, mm-hmm. it's, has, this, has the inferno spread from his body to the rooftop, but left his head immaculate. Because at that point, we're talking about a saint. With you know, we we're thinking if this is a, a man who spontaneously combusts from the neck down, but his head is perfectly preserved. That's the kind of thing in the Dark Ages that relics would be made of, and we would be getting into another interesting show, a Cad file, maybe. Just think what would happen if Frank was more like Cad file. Things would be a hell of a lot more interesting. That's what. So, possibly it's not vampires burst into flame, but it is a fact that, as you're mentioning, the weather vane, in fact, was so hot that it caught his <laughs> leathers on fire. Yes. And it was the leather that burned. That's why Stevie Ray died. That's what right. they say. When you buy patent leather, there's a little label on the inside. It will say to you, do not put in contact with weather vanes. It's true. Or, or, or other, um, you know, forged iron implements. I think... Whether you're talking about steel, it might be a slightly different rule um, when you start diluting the iron content. But, <laughs> but yeah, raw iron, it's like a fairy thing. Um, and and it's, it's really funny because, again, we watched the pilot for Forever Night where um, Lacroix got staked by a metal stake. And there was a whole plot point of saying, you can't kill a vampire with iron. And then this show comes four years later and you absolutely can kill a vampire with iron, apparently. <laughs> oh. I, I could go on, but... Scene. <laughs> <laughs> you want to go the quarters? We can go the quarters because I could stick at this point for like another ten minutes. But. <laughs> well, okay, let's stick with this for another ten minutes <laughs> because on the first scene. because we have, while at least two of us have already excoriated Frank uh, for just being, uh, I th- there's a there's an odd moment in this opening scene where Frank is if not likable, animated. Right. And and it's when he has his buddy cop moment with Sonny. It feels a bit lethal weapon-ish, you know. He's even calling Sonny in the scene baby, which seems very familiar. Yeah. Uh, but, but they are in San Francisco, and I know it's a very liberal town. So let's say the police detectives in San Fran go around calling each other babe and talking... <laughs> About how they want to take down Luna because he's the big, the head honcho, the big cheese, the big kahuna, and all this. And Sonny said, he'll jam your badge up your ass sideways. Uh, And while it sounds terrible, because it is, I'm sorry, I've used the word terrible, uh, I'm having to truck off. It is buddy cop banter. Right. And that means there was something they could have done with these two yeah. characters. It uh, just goes away. And it uh, from the moment they are, I think it must be PTSD. Let's 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 assume it was written in that the moment they see Stevie Ray, not the WCW wrestler, burst into flames <laughs> on the rooftop, uh, they no longer have that buddy uh, buddy relationship. They can't get over it. They've seen a man so, burst flames. They can't explain anymore. Are you telling me that literally when they saw Stevie Ray, that's when shit got real? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for Booker T. 
Yes, an NWO invasion. Oh, God. Onto the rooftop, Spinneroonie is way toward the gangrel and says, Wait, that's not my Stevie Ray. Spinneroonie's back down. Oh. And then we get to. You realize we now <laughs> had to do a wrestling podcast episode because. At some point. I, I think the podcast is now a big fan also of John Cena, at least me after seeing Peacemaker. <laughs> it, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was good in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles as well as uh, Rocksteady. Wow, he was. Mm. Uh, I mean, but, all right, Eddie, you want to keep us on point? No, I'll, you want to talk was, about the gonna... corner scene? <laughs> I was going to briefly digress and say I could see an entire short season of. Movies that happen to have uh, uh, wrestlers as the primary um, cast members. We do like Scorpion King and. Mm. Uh, but, I'm not going to watch Scorpion King again. Fair enough. Um, but yes, yeah, so Matthew, uh, the, the the asshole coroner scene who is baffled by this corpse and is really, really shitty about it for some reason. <laughs> uh, well, th- there's a few things that I, I loved about the coroner. Um, and, and not, not, but first to go back to the opening. <laughs> <laughs> We can um, escape the gravity of this scene. Yes. <laughs> uh, my, my final thought, as Jerry Springer would say, may he rest <laughs> in peace, is the is the uh, descent, the, the two Bruja jumping off the rooftop <laughs> like the other guys. Uh, I, I mean, that's where my thought immediately went, the, the opening <clears throat> scene from the other guys, where they would go into slow motion and uh, my hero would start playing. So that's a meme I made after that. But <laughs> I, my head after going through the funny stuff was, okay, how much falling damage <laughs> would they take? Because Bruja do not have fortitude as an in-clan discipline. Right. And uh, and I, I don't think they have the age yet where they would have developed uh, this but discipline themselves. They could have had a lot of stamina to absorb the hit, so then they could use celerity to run and leap into the water. It is, it is admittedly only bashing damage. Uh, so yeah, yeah, they could have, yeah. uh, they could have soaked it immediately upon landing. I will grant you that. I, I gained the impression this was something like a six-story warehouse building, so it's still a pretty sizable drop. But okay, the coroner. Mm-hmm. There's a few things that I was a big fan of with the coroner. <laughs> <laughs> One, the coroner <laughs> was angry that the so cops mad. didn't know what accelerant was used. Right. Because uh, Sonny, uh, Eric King's character, and Frank were both saying to him, um, well, well, we don't know what was used. We don't know why this person went up in flames. And the coroner says, and why not? Well, because you're the fucking coroner. It's your job. Take samples, toxicity reports. I've seen these shows. I know what you're supposed to be doing. We bring the bodies to you. You give us the answers. That's how this works, man. And and obviously the coroner's got that uh, staple. I'm a bit creepy persona of I don't I don't trust what this guy does with the bodies when no one else is around. Right, exactly, uh, and yeah. that's certainly an insinuation. Um, the other thing I was a big fan of. So number two with the coroner was how he flubs a line and course correct. Uh, yes, I got granular with this, and course correct, and it never gets edited out of the episode. So he says, uh, he while he's recording, seems to be some kind of spontaneous burning of f- living tissue. <laughs> he yes. wants to say flesh, 
Right. And, and he would have got away with it too. Yeah. If, he had, <laughs> if it wasn't was meddling kids. Meddling but what if they decided they wanted to be do a Lynchian move and leave in the mistake? Maybe that is how. I can't. I can't even do yes, that. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, you're, you're giving. Was, was, this was, show. was David Lynch even Lynchian in '96? I don't even think so. Yeah. I think Lynch has yeah. been Lynch since '80s. Okay. Uh, see, right. I would have accepted. Okay, so let's take that from a different angle. Maybe the script said spontaneous bursting of F and then dot, 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 corrected to living tissue. Right. So maybe the coroner's supposed to be a bit taken aback. Spontaneous bursting of living tissue. You know, uh, he, he's, he catches himself, he pauses, but that isn't how it's acted. No. It's spontaneous burning of living tissue. <laughs> living tissue. And the final, my final favorite part of the coroner, which is when we revisit him and he gets murdered. So dead. By Daedalus, who must have been patiently waiting in that slab, <laughs> on that, in that mortuary freezer for a long time for his moment. I mean, how what else are you going to do as a vampire? What else are you going to do as a vampire? You've got eternity. The sun doesn't kill you. So obviously you've got forever on top of that. You have to find something to amuse yourself with. He's probably sitting in there for hours thinking of different ways he could kill the Rubik's Cube. That would be cool. Yeah. He's like, this would be the most dramatic way. But what about this one instead? Yeah. So, my, my, what I really liked about that scene, and it's not the coroner in particular, but it's all the scenes surrounding the coroner, was, yeah, okay. So, Daedalus has been waiting in that mortuary. He doesn't know when the coroner's going to be walking by, or maybe he's got all specs. Let's say he's got all specs. So, he knows the coroner has got his back turned to him. So, he slides the tray out, climbs off, and stalks up behind the coroner and bites him. Right. Now, this goes back to your point, Eddie, about how the uh, the character realizes Frank realizes he's surrounded by vampires. Yep, no one else seems to know, mm-hmm. and yet vampires in this show, for the most part, only ever seem to kill people by biting. Right, which is clearly for the viewer to emphasize this guy's a vampire. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait! No, uh, uh, Alexandra did die from a nail, a, a very sharp nail. <laughs> but if I was a sneaky Nosferatu assassin primogen with um, self-conscious issues regarding my baldness, I probably wouldn't be the spoilers. Uh, I wouldn't be going around murdering people with my fangs. Right. I would I would sneak out from the morgue and slot the guy with a knife or have a silenced pistol because someone's going to find his body and is, is going to say. Weird. Where's all the blood gone? Which I'm fairly certain <laughs> Frank says. Um, when you could uh, just as easily have just gone across the throat, and then it looks like some deranged ma- maniac has got in. I know. I'm. Uh, I'm looking for logic where there is none. But it's a perfect trifecta. Everything surrounding the coroner is just so delightful. A wonderful main course to follow the starter of the rooftop fight. This, if you'd seen Forever Night, then you would actually get to see a corner that is the exact opposite of this, who is Natalie, that is like a beacon of light in that show. And that Mm -hmm. was refreshing compared to this very dated stereotype, even in the 90s. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. He's he's just like, yeah, not quite necrophile, but heavily implied to be one. 
Yeah, but I buy the um, cops, and I'm not sure I trust the cops. Not Frank, anyway. <laughs> Maybe, the coroner could have been a perfectly decent guy, except for the whole, so what accelerant did they use? Well, what, what, what's, what's hilarious is, like, it, you know, we're five minutes in, but, like, um, Johnny looks like the most competent character on the police force. Yes. And he turns out to be a venture. And so it's just like, <sighs> of course it Turned out to be a, a slime ball on all counts for cop worlds and vampire worlds. Yeah. Big spoiler, if, in case you don't know that for mm-hmm. some reason. <laughs> uh, so um, Julian's mad about D.B. Ray being killed. Archon tells him to knock it the fuck off. Um, <laughs> he says, <laughs> they're hoping you will frenzy and looks to the camera, smiles right. and winks. <laughs> right. Right. Look for that on page 23 of your rulebook, kids. And then turns back to Julian Luna. Scene continues. Yeah. Julian Luna then says, they staked him out like dead meat and burned him in the sun like a beast. And turns to the camera, smiles. It's, it's, it's clunky. And and, uh, just, uh, I know uh, I'm picking holes in every damn line. This could be a 10 hour podcast. I won't do it. I won't do it constantly. However, so let's go. Let's look at that line. Let's examine the line, shall we? We're all writers here. Okay. They staked him out like dead meat and burnt him in the sun like a beast. Right. Okay. They staked him out like dead meat. Not often you stake out dead meat. I suppose you may do if you're trying to lure a predator. You know, you're doing it like bait. Yeah. yeah uh, sure. So staked him out like dead meat and burned him in the sun like a beast. Is that a common thing you do with beasts? Is burning them in yeah, the sun? Yeah, it, it's a, it's an entire sentence that actually makes no sense when put together. If mm-hmm. the, if you put a nice full stop in the middle, they staked him out like dead meat. Clenches fist, he burned in the sun, and then maybe like a beast. But no, it still doesn't work, does it? Is there is there any reason you're making this entire movie every time you quote things to be like a '40s noir? Mystery, like every time you do it, I've seen Humphrey Bogart, like with uh, Frankenstein, Sunny, right they there. The right there. <laughs> they staked him out like dead meat, see, and burn him in the sun like a beast. That would be better, actually. Vampire noir. Vampire yeah. noir, yeah. Now, man, that's the next RPG the three of us make. Right. And then uh, there's trademark. about 75 minutes of Frank and Alexandra. Um, uh, where she's she does this thing which which it's early vampire fiction so I'm trying not to ding it too hard but it drives me up a wall when vampires make all these plays on words and it just keeps happening it keeps happening mm. it's, the, it's the I don't drink wine you know problem uh, and it just keeps going and going and it's just like you are a police investigator how are you not picking oh that's right you're terrible at your job never mind you're Frank yeah. uh, I suspect Frank is an alcoholic on amphetamines. Right. Uh, okay. Yes. It, it, it is close to her basically leaving the restaurant with him, pointing across the road to where there's some kids playing basketball. It's nighttime, of course, and she right. looks at him last and says, children of the night. She doesn't say that. <laughs> but she might as well. <laughs> All right. Let's take a minute to break down Frank. So then maybe we could stop beating like up beast. poor C. Thomas's house. How old is Frank supposed to be? Because they they referring to him as like a a, a grizzled cop. 
He's a maverick. He looks to be about 12. He plays so by his own he, rules. At one point, because I wrote this down, um, uh, he was asked about, he, he apparently had a previous wife who committed suicide. Uh, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, he also, uh, I'm talking about the character here, by the way, not the actor. He, he also um, apparently has been with Sonny for a while. They have been partners for a while and has somehow missed the fact that he's a vampire, but regardless. Um, so he's well, been the, the force for... Yeah, he's been in the force for several years. Mm. He looks 12. I agree. He acts um, like he's six, but he looks 12. Yeah. Yeah, he does... Uh, see, it, it, the thing is, it wouldn't have worked with a an older, grizzled, uh, maverick cop either, because then I don't think you'd believe the almost teenage romance that he has with Alexandra. Uh, it's it's a weird mix. They they try and put too much in the character of Frank in right. all seriousness yeah. uh, right. uh, now, without you know demeaning the man's performance. As a character, as a written character, he has too much weight to carry on his own. Right, uh, it's the kind of thing you could have spread across Frank and Sonny. Again, it maybe if Sonny wasn't a vampire or a ghoul or anything like that. And the and yeah, I don't think uh, Thomas Howell is competent, and I'm not sure enough people would be to carry that kind of burden. Uh, <laughs> because yeah, if you're older. If you, you know, look like a grizzled, unshaven, um, maverick, loose cannon cop, no one's going to buy the romance with Alexandra, unless right. it is a noir-style set. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I don't know what she sees in me, but uh, <laughs> an old old cop like me with a Pearl Harbor wound in my hip. But, right. Um, <laughs> All right. I'm just going to want to hire you now, Matthew, to like... <laughs> Read a noir book, audiobook of some kind. That's... <laughs> and not a good one, too, like a Mike Hammer novel or something. Yep. <laughs> um, I also love that it's weird moment because, again, this is mid 90s on Fox, which was still trying to be ostensibly a, a big network. Mm. Um, and so we had this weird, prudish moment of a woman who's clearly doing drugs in the bathroom, but we don't see what the drugs are. Oh, you see a little. I think, I think you see a fraction of powder. It's, uh, it's, it's very cropped out of shot. Like, mm. like if, if, if it's on there, it's purely by accident. Whereas was like, probably nowadays, we like, had a close-up of her doing the line before we yeah. pull back. You know? Oh, definitely. Yeah, again, mm. if this was HBO, she'd be shooting it into her veins. Right. Uh, <laughs> naked, probably. Um and then you'd see the sex scene. The, and that's another odd thing where I, with Vampire, the Masquerade, the role-playing game. And it's interesting. Segue. I was running a uh, Victorian mage game recently, Mage of the Ascension, Ooh. another World of Darkness game for the listener. And I ran into a very interesting thing that has occasionally come up in Vampire games too. And that is when the characters were no longer capable of casting spells. They were too weak to do so, basically. Uh, There were various effects that prevented them from doing so. They felt utterly paralyzed as players. Like, there there were still things they could have done. They could have thought their way, socialized their way, punched their way out of the situation. But they thought, as soon as I don't have magic anymore, I'm 
I'm powerless. And yep. that's a really interesting thing because you get the same thing in Vampire occasionally with disciplines. And with Alexandra, you get it mm-hmm. uh, in this uh, bathroom scene where she is seducing the lady with the cocaine to get a, a bite to eat, essentially. And she uses dominate or presence, let's say, because her eyes flash a colour. The seduction was going absolutely fine without the use of the discipline. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. She, the woman even asked and offered her, would you like some of my dope? Basically, yeah. I mean, yeah, sharing's caring and all that. And and Alexandra could have just gone, yeah, I'd love a line, and then maybe you know make things a bit more familiar. But instead, no, it's just fuck this. I don't have the time for a thirty second seduction. You're mine. And... Well, again, I, I think this is again slightly time because I mean, um, this is. Right around the time where Deep Space Nine is doing their uh, female romance episode and getting hammered for it, mm. um, so it's the oh no, a woman couldn't possibly seduce a woman unless a, a, a magic power is involved, um, and that does very much feels like that. Whereas you're right, like it was clear, like her and the woman in the bathroom had way more sexual chemistry than she and Frank did. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I wanted to watch these two. I'll have to watch that episode for the rest of the thing. And it's like, you know, she's now the main character. Let's follow this crap, this cokehead, and see where she go- her journey goes, right? I mean, I'm, I'm into this. You're making um, assertions about that woman's character. For all you know, <laughs> she could have been on a bad date, just how Alexandra was, and needed yeah. something to help her get through that date. I mean, it could have been aspirin. Who knows? Uh, I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe, honestly, maybe Alexandra should have had some coke. It would have helped her with Frank, but, you know. On the, on the subject of terrible... Uh... <laughs> Terrible romantic chemistry. <laughs> it's not helped by the music, is it? They leave the restaurant, head back to I, I guess Frank's place. Uh, I assume every cop has lots of billowing drapes in their uh, apartment do. in San Francisco. It gets very warm. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, the swelling, plinky, plonky days of our lives music, as they are, I don't know. I, I can't, can't even call it a seduction. Let's call it rotting. It's 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 like a child let loose on a Casio keyboard, you know. It's it's very it's almost the farty horns from the basement music in the Resident Evil director's cut in quality. It's it's room levels of romance, and obviously, room will probably come back to room later oh, when yeah, we look yeah. at episode three, yeah. uh, but <laughs> for for certain visual reasons. Uh, but the famous uh, sex scene where Tommy Wiseau is essentially making love to Orman's navel, based on his positioning, is it is strongly reminiscent yes. here. And I know this is basically, it's almost daytime TV. They're not going to be right. going for some HBO. For anyone that doesn't know what The Room is, because The Room is a very specific specific <laughs> reference, Fair. what is a 30-second recap for our listeners of The Room? Uh, a movie made by an author, writer, director, actor by the name of Tommy Wiseau, 
who lacks the talent and capacity for criticism to make anything that's actually worthy of any kind of qualitative appraisal and therefore only stands up as a parody of itself that the creator has subsequently gone on to claim was deliberately a parody and has reaped great rewards for doing so. Sadly, all subsequent movies by this director, writer, actor have been uniformly shit. Right. Uh, so that's the room. Right. Which um, but not also room had an abundance of money, if I remember correctly, to be able to go in to buy cameras that other people are forced yeah. to rent. The the mystery of Tommy Wiseau is a is practically a meme unto itself at this point. Oh, God, is yeah. he an alien? Uh, is you know <laughs> who knows? It's a little bit nonlinear time. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, but yes, yes, uh, it was a an odd sex scene to go for, right. and only highlighted how the two of them must have had a very unpleasant. In this scene, I can, if I was to get into the heads, I'm imagining neither of them is enjoy, enjoying this sexual encounter. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, I do want to note here that it's made explicitly clear in this episode that what happens to Frank on a biological level is because he made love to Alexandra. I don't mind that. I don't. No, no, no. Well, I don't okay. mind that concept. Except, that except, jumping ahead briefly, we have Daedalus having sex with a woman, and well, nothing happens to her. I think that was. He also specifically references, though, that he had her blood or something. Also, there's one other line that pops up in the pilot that is added that Daedalus didn't do. Fair, when but Daedalus it's, did what it's, he did. it's it was it, it was a weird. Emphasis for that one. Yeah. No, I've got a theory for that, and mm-hmm. it isn't a pleasant one. Uh, that Daedalus, being an ancient Greek, and either he's adopted that name or he is an ancient Greek. <laughs> I'm not going where you think I am, Chris. I'm Eddie. <laughs> I'm thinking that, to put it bluntly, he slipped it between her thighs. Um, uh, and uh, never consummated the deed in the traditional way. See, I didn't go where you thought I would. I see. And uh, that's, that's what Daedalus knows. Um, <laughs> he's never learned another way. And so she isn't affected in the same way. Uh, but because she's never revisited our person who can only sing House of the Rising Sun. We're, we're uh, not so in episode three yet. I know, I no, know. No, no, no. Um, we may never get there at this rate. Yeah. But, uh, because she's never revisited, for all we know, she does develop Frank-like symptoms, and if that's the case, sure. God help her. Fair. Even though we don't, Frank's symptoms are vaguely defined best. <laughs> now that you've, you've... Thank you. I was going to go into that. So, Frank is effectively a ghoul, we're going to say. Yeah, they didn't use the word. What? He's immune to dominate, possibly? That seems is to that... be the only ability he has demonstrated in the episodes we watched. I now, think in one of the episodes we skipped, it also implied that he can run a little faster than normal. But I don't know if that's true or if I'm mixing it up with Forever Night. Yeah, I don't. See, again, I think it maybe get a bit squicky. I've not examined it in huge detail uh, as a concept. But the idea of if you, let's say, make love to or with one of your ghouls, that they then become immune to your mental disciplines isn't on its own a bad concept it no. adds a level of romance to vampire the masquerade or romance i don't know if it would be constituted as that but a sexual element that isn't there presently 
but who knows? Uh, Renegade are releasing a uh, book on seduction and love in Vampire the Masquerade, and uh, I I have every confidence that it will be a hit if they put in content from Kindred of the Embrace. There we go. There we go. But with if Frank was going to be the protagonist of the show, which I've already made my opinions about the actor well. Yeah, known. I think, I think that right. would have been a great ability to give a protagonist so, so that sure. the mental powers of the vampires, I'm sorry, the kindred don't work on them. Breaking no, right. the masquerade, Chris. It, it, it looked like it was building up to something that, you're right, probably got pivoted away from. Um, so so uh, we have uh, Lily, Julian, and Cash talking about Eddie Fiore's plans to take over the city. Um, oh, Fury. And then the Bruja yeah. drive up to a drive-by with a Fucking phosphorus rounds, <laughs> and, and everyone just stands around. After yes, it, it's like, oh, oh, it's another drive-by with phosphorus rounds. It's it's San Francisco. It's <laughs> someone in a vampire game that has done this. Can I tell you that it is so much joy? Like, you can rewatch it now. RPG accurate scene in this whole show. <laughs> this was my favorite scene in the entire pilot. It reminded me of games I played. I loved every second of it. So there's a, <laughs> I, I, there's a few things to note from this scene as well. One is that apparently Stevie Ray, uh, God rest his soul, Im- seems to have embraced every gangrel in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, everyone says, you know, Stevie Ray was our sire. Wow. Prolific. Uh, he must have been favored <laughs> by the prince. Um, now, what I, I liked about this scene is Luna goes up to Cash uh, of Tango and and <laughs> asks Cash, uh, Cash the Gangrel biker, will you be my guard dog? Your sire right. is gone. And Cash thinks it over and eventually agrees. Now, I actually, again, I like it because there's a tendency, especially in games of vampire, that every character is constantly trying to be top dog. Mm-hmm. And it's good to have characters who can accept that I'm not a leader, but I'll be a fighter. And and Cash, while he brings absolutely no emotion or much of substance to the entire show, does work as a guard dog, as a yeah. sheriff or bodyguard. I've mm-hmm. no issue with that. Now, I actually wrote, and I hope you don't mind the language, um, and I can't. I didn't write this in context because I have notes. The cop is a fucking cretin. <laughs> this is before I'd learned Frank's name, and I just wanted to point, point that note out. Now, yes, the scene where they they phosphorus bomb the cafe, uh, let's call it the cafe domain. Uh, they, that was the haven, wasn't it? That may have been the haven. Yeah. There's a couple of things. One, the San Francisco Police Department response t- time is bloody good you know if i want if i'm gonna have my restaurant bombed i want it to be in san francisco because frank and sunny show up there it must be within five seconds of it occurring because luna hasn't even got back into his car and they interview they interview they just walk straight up and i don't believe anyone tips them off this could be a fury to sunny thing um which maybe i think so but I don't. But why would Sonny have said to Frank, "Hey, let's swing by the the Haven"? Because I don't. Sonny that, hmm. is a working sort of both sides. Right. So anything that's going to potentially hurt Luna potentially yeah. puts him in a place of power. And Eddie, Eddie Fury could have called him. Which 
So I, if I can't have a show starring Sonny, I wanted a show starring Eddie Fury. I wanted to yeah. watch yes. that show into the yes. ground. Yep. Uh, well, uh, we, you you yeah. mentioned before, Matthew, about um, we're jumping ahead a little bit, but like um, this not having all vampire characters pet dogs. It's genuinely nice to see a vampire character who's just not that bright. Yeah. Right. Eddie Fury is not the mastermind. He has everything is a nail. He has a hammer, and that is what he's going to use. And I kind of respect that on some level. Like I kind of want to see a show from his perspective of like. This day I'm gonna kill Julian. Okay, I got to revive Julian. No, this is the day I'm gonna kill Julian. Okay, I got to revive Julian. <laughs> the now. things they do with Eddie Fury in this show uh, is probably the highlight of the entire show yes. for me. Yes. Uh, the and um, the actor whose name I forget, um, you know, something Thompson, Thompson maybe, um, Brian Thompson. Uh, he. So he, there's a Mortal Kombat connection. He played Shao Kahn in Mortal Kombat Annihilation, and of course the alien bounty hunter in the X Files. Yeah. But um, Brian Thompson's portrayal of Eddie Fury is a Bruja who is, on one hand, ultra confident, mm-hmm. despite acknowledging he lacks certain skills. Yeah. And then he's confident about what he can achieve, but he lacks confidence in his own ability. Yeah. To do it. Yes. Uh, and again, we'll explore this more if we ever reach the, our third episode. <laughs> um, but especially when he's around his sire later on, he is almost childish in his, you know, and if this doesn't work, I'm going to die, aren't I? And yeah. so you get that even as far early as the pilot episode. He is the strongest part of this entire show. I completely agree. And, uh, yes. and I, yeah, so. I can. I think the idea you point out, Chris, of Sonny playing off both sides is a perfectly reasonable thing for him to do. Because if he is, if he is an astute cop, a good reader of personalities, he can look at Luna and say, "Well, this is this guy's failings," and he can look at Eddie and think, "Well, this is this guy's failings. I'm going to take advantage of that." That's right. that's decent storytelling embedded in this show. Yeah, and I mean, like, um, so okay, we're in episode one. Eddie Fury has murdered your bodyguard and just did a murder attempt on you. At the end of this episode, is Fury bloodhunted? No. Is he kicked out of primogen? No. Is the Bruja in any way punished? No. This is all Julian Luna's fault. Because Eddie Fury is making it super clear what his intentions are. Yeah. What proof do you have that Eddie Fury <laughs> killed your bodyguard that you can take to the other primogens to say, Fury did this. We must now well, kill Fury. And- and that's something that it's almost frustrating about this pilot because, like, you can see the political web, right? It's like, if Aaron Spelling had cared more about the politics and less about the soap opera, there could have actually been a really interesting kickoff point for the politics of these five characters now they interact with each other. Mm. Because, I mean, we see Lily is clearly that, that Luna has most of the primacy on this side. He's sleeping with Lily, even though she's mad at him. Um, he's got Daedalus on his side, um, and he just elevated Cash. Um, so it's like there's an interesting political thing of like, okay, it's Eddie Fury versus the rest of the primogen, but then we can slowly start to spin those away from Julian as various things kick in as, you know, the later plot line of Cash and Sasha, you know, and then Lily getting jealous of uh, Luna's things and Daedalus growing hair. All of these things slowly spin him away from Luna as he eventually, you know, and then Fury takes advantage. That was all really cool, but it gets lost in some of the subplots here. Mm. And it, so it just comes across like, Julian's not a very good prince, um, which is frustrating because you're right. Like the, the a line of, of Fury just going, "What proof do you have? 
and Julian going, ah, oh, you got me. That is totally one of the laws that we absolutely have that I need proof. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's, something. I, I, it's a primogen council that is not capricious. And mm-hmm. again, that that's an it's not a bad thing to see. It no. shows that they do actually have traditions they abide by, despite the fact in every live action role play of Vampire the Masquerade, they're gonna be as selfish and capricious and uh, right. turning sides at any given time. That isn't bad writing at all. And Eddie Fury turns it back on him and says, Well, you know, you're the one who um is protecting someone who's breached the masquerade. Right. And yeah, he's right. This is that is one of our laws. So fuck you, Luna. Right. Um, We're on Luna. Before we move on, yeah. As two veteran vampire writers and general content creators, what do you think of Luna as a prince and how incredibly human friendly they made Luna? I one thing I was trying to keep in mind while watching this is that this is was probably written and produced right around the time second edition had been launched and the role of the prince in vampire the masquerade has changed pretty strongly like for example people have dinged this and said you know they they call cash his bodyguard and never call him a sheriff and it's like yeah but the, the concept of a sheriff didn't really exist until the live action game came out mm. it was ne- never existed in the tabletop game um and the prince as this powerful elder that manipulates absolutely everyone wasn't really a thing yet in vampire the masquerade so from the slice of time we're looking at, Julian is probably a pretty accurate representation of how a prince probably was perceived in Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah, I don't have an issue. I don't have an issue with him having praxis in San Francisco as it's presented, mainly because while he doesn't seem to have much political power, he's definitely not the most successful of schemers, though he has his no. moments. Uh, he clearly abides by a certain rule of fairness, which isn't terribly interesting from a plot standpoint. Uh, but from if you want to keep the tides low, and you know, um, <laughs> and you want San Francisco to abide by the masquerade and the other traditions, uh, then that's not a bad prince to have, especially if when things get bad, you can oust that prince pretty easily. <laughs> it makes sense to have a soft figurehead if you've got your archons and maybe your lilies behind him. Yeah. Daedalus is a bit more nebulous and uh, it's a very different character from one episode to the next. Yes. Um, and Eddie Fiore is clearly primed for the, well, wants the big seat. But because he stands in contrast, uh, Luna stands in contrast to Fiore, it can very easily make the rest of the primogen think, well, we'd rather be tied to this soft handed uh, prince than this uh, burning our havens up with phosphorus <laughs> grenades potential usurper. Right. Um, we covered some of the scenes that fall after this already, so I'm going to jump to um, uh, Sasha crashing Julian's great-grandson's funeral. Oh. Uh, the introduction of Sasha. What a character. And it's this is such a weird... Well, it's a weird scene for a lot of reasons. Making out with a corpse certainly, I'm surprised, got on television in 1996. Um, is it is it still incest if they're dead? Yes. Well, she wasn't sitting on his face, uh, but she well. Was... <laughs> so, how many of of your relatives have you given this like like a big kiss to? 
um, not, uh, none, my lad. That's my final statement on the matter. Um, and, but I mean, it's, it's it's so like, I, Sasha's such a fascinating character for me because, like, on the one hand, it's such an interesting character, right? Like, because again, minor spoilers. Um, ultimately, she falls for Cash. Cash falls for her. She gets embraced by the Bruja, and it becomes kind of a Romeo and Juliet dynamic because she mm. was tapped tapped to become a venture. She gets embraced as Bruja in power play, and that puts her at odds with both Luna and Cash. Yeah. Um. So it's an interesting dynamic, and the actor is certainly doing her best with this. Okay, you're going to be transgressive. You wouldn't be, you know, shock. Um. But this whole scene just it feels so weird because it is, it's the most it's well not the most but one of the most soap opera parts of the show you know yeah. the the uh, prodigal grandchild appears at the funeral crashes it quite literally uh, on right. a motorcycle and <laughs> but, but but i mean it, it, it's it's i think it's like she, I mean, we mentioned before like none of the actors are playing melodrama except for sasha yeah right and so her melodrama would be perfectly in line with a Morticia soap opera or a Forever Night or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, it's jars so much, particularly against Julian's performance. Mm. Um, now what's interesting is that the guy playing Julian does start to seem kind of start bringing his game up a little bit or next to her. Like when he's against her, he adds a little inflection, like his subdued thing. You start to feel the undercurrent of, of anger in his portrayal when he's playing against Sasha specifically that he doesn't have with the other actors. So like she's upping his game, which is fascinating. She's like, mm. in some ways, one of the more stronger personality actors on this show. And she's the wayward granddaughter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I find, find her character truly irritating in the first episode, but I think that's intentional. Right. You know, right. She, she goal, she's supposed to be. to be, although her age, what age she's supposed to be is uh, much like Frank uh, right. all over the place. At one point she's in high school, or she's being groomed for high school with yeah. the nuns, yeah, and then later, mm. almost certainly not. Uh, but one thing we missed, and we're still on episode one, <laughs> is the wonderful scene where Luna and Lily are getting it on. And I think it's Lily in this oh, scene. It's, yeah. it's, it's, did I skip that one? No, you're right. I just, I just skipped the one where Archon uh, quickly watches them. Yeah, Archon watches them. <laughs> yeah. And then, so I did, I did and then walks in on them. Yes. And with a sort of sorry to interrupt you, mid nookie master. Because at this point, he's he's very seneschal like. Uh, right. Yeah. And he's going around in his sort of smoking jacket, looking like a Vincent Price host. Uh, so, and he says, scene... and he stares right up the Toreador's asshole. Um, this is the. the... <laughs> uh, he doesn't <laughs> raise an eyebrow. Let's talk about Clan of the Road. Um, but no, he. That they are basically mid copulation. He walks in. It's probably the most revealing, the most sexy. If you no, it's not sexy. Is a bit gynecological i guess how it's just so up there um and he just stands there sorry to interrupt you prince your grandchild's dead i mean imagine just imagine you are aware that someone's grandchild has died or any relative has died and you know that they are at it in the next room you're what you've been watching them 
is it a power play on Archon's part to deliver this news sort of mid-erection? Um, yes, but I raise you that Lily, <laughs> who is a Toreador, should have auspects and is aware that they are being watched. Oh, I think she, she probably is. I think that's why she positioned her um, <laughs> her her ass in that direction. Um, this Archon's thing. It's getting Lynchian again. Archon waits in the cupboard. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I think... That's the be last... my next book, by the way. Archon <laughs> Weeks in the Covenant. That's my next book. <laughs> it's sequel, Up the Toreador's Ass. Uh, <laughs> and, and other stories by Archon Archon. Um, uh, Archon Archon. Yeah, it's like a Hella character from Catch-22. Archon 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 Archon. Uh, he was Prince Archon. Um, before that, he was Prim- now he's Primogen Archon. But anyway, anyway, yes. Um very impolite is my point. Very impolite to interrupt nice. the prince and primogen mid-coitus to say your grandchild's died. He could have waited three minutes. Right. <laughs> I'm going to let it go. I will say, though, this scene reminded me a lot, rewatching, of Brandon Roth's Superman hanging outside Lois Lane's house, extra visioning her as she went around their home. Yeah. yeah. Very creepy. Yeah. Very, mm-hmm. I'm watching you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, um, again, I'm kind of fast winding through some of this stuff. Um, uh, Julian does mention uh, when, when Sasha kind of gets brought to the house, uh, Julian mentions to Archon, anyone who embraces Sasha will be killed. Spoiler, that does not happen. No. Um, He's very soft. I take Vel- it back. Velvet slippers, no, I, I take it back. Prince. It does kind of happen because <laughs> <Big bark>. um, <laughs> I believe, if I'm correct, Fiori embraces her, but then he sacrifices one of the other Bruja as a scapegoat to actually die. And mm. everyone knows that's what happens, but it still happens. So it kind of happens. Yes, Fury's on, uh, he, he's out, outliving his usefulness. He's on right. borrowed time, Eddie. I don't, I don't, uh, Eddie, Eddie. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, he's a rogue Kendra. Somebody's going to bring him down. Um, Duna says, uh, goes to threaten Alexandra, sends one of his goons in a car. Uh, Alexandra sees him, tells Frank, hey, I'll be right back. Goes takes the guy, apparently drinks him dry, drives his car to Julian's house, dumps the body on the lawn, and says, hey, don't mess with me. By the way, I didn't breach the masquerade. Hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, I, I, I respect the play, but that may not be saying the message you think it is, Alexander. You asked what a power play was, and if Archon Archon was doing it. No, this is a power play. <laughs> You know the post um, Alexandra Frank um, love scene that comes up soon with the wolf on the bed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the and um, Frank trying to shave his face, and he's incapable of <laughs> shaving the smoothest part of his cheek and without cutting himself because he is twelve, as we know. Um, <laughs> he's like uh, the Bill Duke in Predator. He's just going <laughs> with the razor down his cheek. Um, but yes, Alexandra comes up and licks the shaving foam and blood off his face, uh, which is uh, quite a toxic combination. I wrote it down as feeding preference barbicide, <laughs> uh, because you can actually <laughs> play that word both ways, uh, listener. You know, so this is a, a clever play on words. Barbicide would, of course, be the murder of a hairdresser. Right, exactly. Um, uh, why didn't we put any of this shit in Beckett's Jihad diary? I, see, I, I, if I had known, I probably should mention it. Um, so now we have a scene of Lily's going to go talk to Eddie Fiore, and, and this is number two favorite scene in the gym. Yes, yeah, and he's doing his curls. 
Of course. It's, it's, it, there's so many layers to this. Like one, it's like, okay, that actually makes no sense from an RPG standard. But we said before that that's not how we should be judging this. And so like, mm. fine, that to the side. So vampires just pump iron. Okay, that's just a thing in this world. Great. Yeah. Um, so Eddie Fury, the head of the Burha clan, sees another prime gym walk in and he tells his buddy, you need to go outside so I can talk to this sexy woman in the gym by myself. And that mm. Burha's like, bye boss. And just yeah. Leave. So already... Eddie Fury has better control of his clan than Julian Luna does because he can actually <laughs> and not have anyone watch him. <laughs> Eddie Fury doesn't skip leg day, and right. and he has the respect of his clan and fellow Primogen. Why why wasn't he Prince? And, and there's this again, Eddie. Uh, I think his name is Brian. Um, the actor playing him. Yeah, Brian Thompson. Do, he's doing some amazingly subtle stuff here, right? Because like Eddie's talking, and the whole time you see him, he's like positioning himself to like kind of flexing he's clearly showing off to lily but it's not in any of the dialogue mm. and she's not having it yeah <laughs> and there's some great non-verbal acting happening here that is nowhere else in this pilot between eddie fiore in the gym with lily and i'm like why is this the scene where the extra level of acting comes in yeah i don't the thing is i don't mind lily being glacial uh, no. because uh, i guess that so there are episodes where it doesn't work uh, and uh, again, don't know how much of this is acted, how much of it's directed. Uh, and so, in this scene, the fact that she is utterly unresponsive to him flexing his pecs, uh, basically, uh, to putting on the gun show, um, that's great. Yeah. It means she is a certain kind of Toreador, a certain mm-hmm. kind of kindred. She's not going to be won over by such, you know, petty pomp. Uh, but yeah, in other episodes, she's like a whiny uh, lost lover who wants to get back with her boyfriend. So, right. Yeah. Um, but but again, it's like it just really reinforced that we've already said, which is like Eddie Fury is is the 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 hidden gem of this show. Honestly. Mm. So, talking with both of you makes me realize that something I may have thought about before, but I will now vocalize is that Archon Archon since he chose Julian, specifically chose Julian because he was so weak, and when he wants to be Prince again, he'll get rid of Julian. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I oh, took that as undercurrent mm. of, because, like, Archon's like, hey, I spent 100 years getting the city under war. I just need a break, so I'm going to put this guy in charge, and then when I decide that I want to be in charge again, I'm going to rip, take his head off, diabolize him, and take the seat again. There's a... Uh, I, that, it could be the case. I mean, I could certainly see it being the case. Uh, I I think he's quite a lot like uh, to a Baldur's Gate 3 reference here, and a Baldur's Gate 3 spoiler for the next 10 seconds. He reminds me of Withers slash Jurgle, being the lord of the end of everything, the god of Ooh. death, uh, destruction, strife, before Bane, Merkel, and Baal became it. You know, he basically voluntarily hands over the seat but knows at some point his time will come again. And uh, they, you know, they are both uh, sat back characters who, uh, yeah, are quite content to let this play. Well, this, uh, this passion play play out. And then among amid the ruins, Archon, Archon, Archon will step Mm -hmm. up and become Prince Archon, 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 except (laughs) as we know from the final episode of the season, which I did watch, uh, that that will never come to pass. No, no, sadly, because <laughs> Archon. Died. I'm surprised that was your Baldur's Gate three reference and not the one about the bear and the wolf where I was going. 
uh, okay, so then we have uh, the, the conclave scene. And again, if more of the show is like this, I think it would have been better because like the idea of all of these plots come to a head in this meeting. Um, it's, it's the, we have Eddie trying to make his power play. Uh, Daedalus then walks in with Steve Ray's corpse with an unspoken, yeah, we know you did this. And then in the middle of this, Lily's like, oh, and by the way, Alexander broke the masquerade and we should murder her. And mm. you could see Julian like doing the mental calculus of like, okay, how do I play this? And then finally realizes that he's been backed into a corner and he has to call for Alexandra, blood, the, the blood hunt for Alexandra. Yeah. Like, that was a moment where I felt like, okay, I see what I see the potential in this show in this scene right here. Like, if this had been everyone has their soap opera nonsense and then it comes back to this conclave table and then everything hits at once and you want to see which way it ends up, which way it ends up going, that could have been a strong show. Uh, but it, the problem is that there's not enough time. Like, they, like the, the Stevie Ray thing is just forgotten for 30 minutes before the show comes back. Oh, by the way, this guy's corpse. Oh. And it's like, hey, yeah. this have been sitting with this corpse for like days? Yeah, you never know? turned to Ash. Right, yeah, just kind of still there. Especially um, his head. And Lily, like, she has a valid point, but it is very much coming across as, oh yeah, I murdered this bitch because she's into my, because she's my boyfriend's ex. Hmm. Um, and so it's like, it, it it could have been a really cool scene, but because there was so much emphasis on the soap opera stuff, it lands wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's one of uh, television's greatest tragedies. <laughs> I not about the greatest, but it, it, it could have been good or at least. Okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, one other thing then uh, I've got so many notes on episode one and realize we're an hour and a half in. <laughs> Uh, and the rest, the thing is, the other episodes I have barely any notes on. Yeah, honestly, yeah, it, it, a lot of episode one. The rest was like, okay, and else, everything else is kind of in the context of episode one, frankly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, the one thing I feel episode one was missing was Cash having one of those wardrobe montage scenes, because when he does become the bodyguard to, uh, I nearly called him Diego Luna, Julian Luna. Uh, mm -hmm. Diego Luna would have been an interesting prince. Uh, <laughs> Jesus is um, is. He put, gives up his essentially his gang colors and yeah. comes out in black leather. Yep. I like the idea of Archon probably sat there. No, 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 <laughs> too, too garish. What a tartan, really? And then eventually, yes, all black. That's that sets a tone. And then, um, as the Bruja say, gangrels are gangbangers with guns. <laughs> Well, uh, try finding a gangbanger without a gun, and he probably won't be a gangbanger. Uh, how many times can I say that word? <laughs> uh, so the blood hunt for Alexandra. Yes. She has bad strategy, doesn't she? Oh, God. Horrible. Horrible. And it's so short, and we go back to the fingernail. The yes. fingernail. <laughs> That pops up throughout the entire course of the pilot. We slashed a painting, I think, in this episode. Yep. Mm -hmm. Show you the horror that is aggravated damage. Do right. we think Daedalus is a um, a cokehead himself, and the one long fingernail is? Oh, his... that is. Yeah. Ah. Um, they, they, they all have problems in San Francisco. I've heard about this. I, I do also like how Daedalus has whatever skill the plot requires. 
So it's yeah. like, um, we need someone to paint in the basement. So cool, you can paint in the basement. We need someone to drive a taxi. Cool, you can drive a taxi. We need someone to sit in a corner for five hours. Cool, you can do that. We need um, you to go out in the sun to put Alexander right. <laughs> on the uh, within view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Fine. Right. Um, but but more to Chris's point, also like I, I do like how at one point in the blood hunt, she's literally being chased in the streets. Well, um, around and, and the I'm corner. Just like, so, <laughs> it was in the street let's, though. Let's recap here. You're being murdered because you're drawing too much attention to vampires, and we're going to solve this by chasing a woman through the streets and murdering her in an alleyway in a white yeah. gown. I mean, she's <laughs> San Francisco she has is to a be big saintly city. at this point in time. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, she's really portrayed that role up until now. Uh, uh, she has the wonderful line when after she is caught uh, and uh, Frank confronts her mm-hmm. and I'm fairly certain it's her that says I can't give you back the innocence which I took by force Yeah, and again another winner there I can't mm-hmm. give you back the innocence which I took by force that's natural you'd sure. say that before throwing yourself into the bay wouldn't you uh, ah, well. Um, and then, of course, uh, we end with uh, all through this, uh, uh, Frank's beginning phone calls from someone with a mysteriously distorted voice. Uh, we find out that it is, in fact, his partner um, and that he is a vampire um, who is working for Eddie. And in that scene, we also learn that Sonny is, in fact, a Ventru, not a Bruja. Yeah. Which is a whole lot of stuff to dump at the end of an episode. Well, they needed the viewers to come back. Right. Uh, it didn't work. The I laughed so hard when Alexandra set alight. I'm not usually a sadist. I don't like to watch characters suffer. Um, but when she burst into flames, again, emergency services response times in San Francisco. She's on the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge. There's a, as Frank arrives, there's already an ambulance queuing behind nice. him. <laughs> so he knows that she's going to be on fire. So again, Sonny's bit, well, we know Sonny called him, but so, because we actually hear the call, but right. Sonny doesn't say, by the way, you'll also want to bring paramedics because Alexandra is going to be a flame. But so two second response time in San Francisco, yep. best place yep. to set yourself on fire. And then she does what all bodies do while falling into the San Francisco Bay. Max Zorin had the same thing in the view to a kill. Turns into a mannequin. Yep. I don't know what it is about the air in California, but when you go plummeting down towards the bay, you just go rigid and um, your limbs just go all stiff. Or maybe it's the best way to land. Uh, I will or it's an Auton plot. I don't know. Unlike oh, Stevie Ray, yes. her head is on fire. Only her head. Well, there you go. If if she and uh, Stevie Ray ever got together, they can make quite a tag team. <laughs> yes, I glossed over the Auton reference. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> we we try to see if we can get a Doctor Who reference in every single episode. You you hit our quota, so thank you. Yeah, there we go. We've had a Patrick Trout and Yeti. And we've uh, yeah had a John Pertwee Orton. I, I, I almost no, but the Yeti question, was but pre pre recording. Oh, was it? Well, yes, it was. in that case, in that case, um, yes. Hooray for me! There we go. Uh, uh, I hate to ask this question, but um, is there anything else about the pilot before we move on? Uh, well, Frank's homicidal tendencies ramp up to manic at the very end. He uh, enters an uncontrolled state following one bad day. So maybe the Joker was right. Uh, he. Uh, <laughs> 
he confronts Julian Luna, shoots him several times without cause. Yes, oh yes, shoots <laughs> him twice. Uh, he is still a police officer, but we know, you know, that police officers have their own code for when people need to be shot. Uh, he he says, uh, let's see. No, the, the prince says, your morality doesn't apply to us. I am the law among my kind, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. Now I'm off to get a clean shirt. You fucked this one up, basically. Because <laughs> yes. it, he just cuts off. He says, I'm the judge, the jury, and the executioner. And then wanders off with his shirt full of holes. Comes back a little <laughs> while later. Had a wardrobe change. <laughs> you uh, wait there, he's... Frank. I'm not done with you, but I'm not wearing this while I dress you down. It, it It's undignified. What's it is better? Vitru-esque. He's like, yes. he's like I'm, the, I'm the executioner. And it's like, but the person you blood hunted was literally in your house not five minutes ago and you told her to go away. Yeah. So you're not the executioner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> True love. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, as we know from the end of the credits, which only occurs in the uncut version, uh, which I believe is the only version that's available now, uh, yeah. it, Alexandra is not dead. Yeah, she, uh, right. she is just lurking at the bottom of the San Francisco Bay. Uh, and so the next part of the, uh, the pilot I want to speak about is the credits. Okay. Wow, <laughs> Before okay. you get there. Yes. I want to point out whoever, when they made this, they must have obviously watched the pilot to Forever Night because at the end of Forever Night, the woman that's supposedly killed in that also gives you a shock reveal of being alive. Well, being yep. a vampire, but right. still being alive. Yep. Now you're saying the incredible credits. Well, I see Mark Reinhagen as the only author credited, which seems legit. Now, <laughs> the lead executive producer, John Leakley. <laughs> Uh, has a rather mixed bag of credits. I don't know if either of you looked no, into No, I was curious about that. No. So he wrote Spawn, or wrote on Spawn, which yeah. really makes the sense. Comics? Um, I think the, t- the TV show. Oh, okay. Uh, I think, was it on MTV, maybe? It was, yeah. HBO, I thought. Oh, uh, HBO. Um, yeah, before HBO got good. And he was... Um, he wrote a movie called The Prince of Central Park, which had some pretty big di- actors in. I think it must have been an arty thing. and But mostly, he's focused on non-fiction books regarding the histories of the Civil War, jazz era, and resistance in Nazi Germany. He, he writes histories. And oh hasn't God. had a TV credit since 2016. I so, will, I will uh, point out that before he did Forever Night, he did the amazing show Knight Rider 2010. <laughs> this is the same guy. Yes. He was, the exe- he was the executive producer on Knight Rider 2010, two years before Kinder's The Embraced. Well, there you go. <laughs> the only way was up. Uh, the stellar only, trajectory. The only John thing Leakey. I remember about Knight Rider 2010 is it was, the, it was the one where the car was red. That is the only thing I remember about that show. <laughs> well, uh, that's episode one done. Right. We've, okay. we've spoken about it for longer than the episode lasted. Um, but again, yeah, like I said before, it's like, honestly, <laughs> most of these are now, we're moving into relatively more contained plot lines. So mm. uh, anyway, episode three, nice stalker. Uh, I, you, I, I raise you but, this. I am happy to keep going for the hour and a half, but I know that you have more time constraints to me. Oh, I've no, to do t- I've no time constraints. I can I'm keep going about this all day. 
do we want to do what Fox did and skip the unaired episode and move directly to the rise and fall of Eddie Fury? How could I'm we had to no, 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 no. Night I, I, I need to talk about Night Stalker, if nothing else, but okay. one scenes. Let me, let, me, let me talk about this because I, oh my God, I have so many opinions. Uh, so Cash is ordered to investigate a recently embraced kindred named Starkweather who turned out to be insane and is totally not a Malkavian. Starkweather escapes and becomes a serial killer. Again, totally not a Malkavian. During the investigation, Julian falls for Caitlin, the city editor for a newspaper he owns, and Lily tells him again that he's an idiot. Meanwhile, Daedalus falls in love with this human singer named Elaine and uses alchemy to change his appearance, but his quote-unquote horrific appearance gets him confused with the so-called Night Stalker. Starkweather, angry and Elaine for misidentifying him, abducts her, dresses as a police officer, and takes her to the Haven for a showdown with Frank and Julian. I so, don't hate it. Uh, I mean, the, it has an utterly a couple of utterly ridiculous moments, right? Uh, I, I mean, the Daedalus stuff is clearly the oh Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Yeah, uh, part of this episode. Uh, the idea of Starkweather being an uncontrollable vampire probably should. I think actually, you know what? Episode three, despite the fact it was on air, yeah. Is really the optimal part, yeah. optimal time to introduce. This is what vampires can be like if we don't have a code, right? Because it starts highlighting to the Franks of the world. Well, so see, people like Luna are actually necessary, so that's fine. Uh, I don't even mind the fact that Starkweather isn't a Malkavian. There's allusions to his potentially being a child of Cash, aren't there? I think because no, no, um, no. no, he makes a comment saying uh, a dark woman in the asylum embraced him. So. Ah. Oh, okay. They leave the door open for a Malkavian. I, I must have missed that line because I yeah. remember Cash being asked, um, do you know who him. embraced him? And Cash basically says, a gangrel, but no one knows who. And he looks shifty. So right. I assumed that, well, either Cash knows who it is or it was Cash, but fair enough. Um, well, I, I agree. This is a good place for the episode because it also gives us a chance to have Cash do something other yeah. than be Julian's pet hanging out at the mansion. He's actually half decent in this episode. I mean, like, because honestly, if you watch, if you don't watch this episode, which again, week week I didn't, I was like, Cash is useless. And this one is like, he's actually, yes, he's the numbers head by Starkweather, but he tries. He's like, no, I'm going to get arrested so I can go to the asylum with him so I can keep an eye on him and try to keep him under control. He doesn't, but it's not through a strong effort. It's because Starkweather's just a little ahead of him. That's really it. So it's like, I really can't fault Cash. In this episode, which is rare. So I can, uh, okay. and uh, while I agree his character has something to do, I don't think he has nearly enough charisma or no, screen presence or, or or emotion behind anything that he's saying to actually carry off the weight of what he's responsible <laughs> for. To Fair, the point, as written, not cash. Well, to the point that it makes me wonder. It really does whether we spoke about earlier in the first episode, people going back to the writers' room and saying, "You know, this Frank guy, he can't be our lead anymore." Mm. Makes you wonder if halfway into the Night Stalker, which of course Richard Ramirez, real serial killer, was nicknamed. Um, oh, jeez. Uh, they they go back into the writers' room and they say, "You know what? It's supposed to be Cash at the end who decapitates Starkweather." It would be a nice character arc for him. But we like Luna. Luna's the protagonist. Let's just drop Cash two-thirds right. of the way in. He's done his investigation bit, got nowhere with it, and all of a sudden, Luna is the protagonist again. And I get it. I understand. I, I'm, that isn't necessarily what happened. I imagine it was written like this from the start. Right. But And Luna is definitely the star by oh, episode yeah. three. Yeah. Absolutely. 
but they undermine their own efforts by not giving a character like Cash a an actual satisfactory arc. He could be he's the basically the sheriff, you pointed out. He could yeah. be the one to bring order to the force. Yeah. And instead leave it to the prince. Of course, it should be the prince who decapitates uh rogue kindred. Right, like you do. In one term, in one thought, though, it makes me think more of power levels from a game perspective where Cash might be your 13th generation newly made vampire who is now mm. appointed to be your sheriff, which means you're good for this very small select window of things. Right. Yeah, if we assume he's good at investigation but not and riding a bike but not much else, then mm. fair enough. That's where he's dumped all of his ability points. Right. Um, he just isn't very good in a fight, which isn't great for a bodyguard. You give uh, two rounds for the prince to figure out what to do. It's no, your no, job. Yeah, it's, it's, okay. You've got fortitude inherent, so you know what? You soak up some aggravated damage while I run. Yeah. Like, that's your job. Yeah. You know what? I don't, I, you could be 15th gen for all I care. Yeah, you'll do well in an asylum. Yeah, you, you do right. the asylum gig. I'll go to the haven. Yeah, well, yeah. Boy. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. Right. We've got to talk about Daedalus, right? So. Yeah. For, this is one of the huge, I mean, this is one of the few times where I actually agree with fandom. Like, this was just done wrong. Um, Daedalus is not in any way, shape, or form horrific. I'm okay with the narrative that just because you're unattractive means you're romantically evil. So I'm like, on one level, I'm okay with that. But the problem is everyone on the show treats him like he's horrifying. Yeah. And this episode is the worst example of it because at one point in time, he literally takes off a wig and the woman goes, Oh my God, you're horrifying. And it forces him to jump out of a window mm. into the daylight. In the uh, daylight. By, by this episode, the daylight rules are off. It oh, should be noted. Gone. But the, yeah. So obviously in vampire, the requiem and one could say in V five, uh, the Nosferatu are more unsettling and uncanny and they provide right. an aura mm -hmm. of discomfort and unpleasant and all that stuff, uh, rather than just being out and out visibly hideous, uh, which is fine. I don't mind. Yeah. I actually like that as a concept. Yeah, agreed. And you could even say that is Daedalus's concept until you get to how people respond to him. Right, exactly. Uh, People, you're right, people are looking at him like he is um, Quasimodo. Mm -hmm. And he is just a bald guy with extended earlobes. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think they necessarily had to give him amazing prosthetics or dollar store prosthetics to make him look hideous. All they had to do was make people act like he was creepy. Or yeah. even have him yeah. act creepy, because right. uh, I have seen that actor in other things, and he can do creepy. But mm -hmm. instead, he is always like this, my prince. I am yeah. so cursed, I wish I was not so hideous. I will take this unidentified demoxenil to, uh, to let my hair grow out. I, it, I, 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 I have one dotted thaumaturgy, and by God, I'm going to use it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the path of the hair shall rise again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I, mean, I would say that I think part of it though is a budget-saving measure for the show itself. Yeah, sure. Because yeah, if sure. you had him look as horrific, I think as they looked in that edition of the book, you'd have to do that for every other single Nosferatu that also showed up. 
Yeah. And you would have lost some of those viewers that you wanted to engage with the character because they would have automatically been turned off by the look of the character. Mm-hmm. No, completely agree. This is one of the cases where I, I argue it's falling between two poles because if they had the benefit of something like Requiem to go, oh, we can just make him creepy. Um, and then we don't have to do any prosthetics. But he, like you said, he, he acts, he walks weird, he, body language is off, and people reframe their language to be, he makes me uncomfortable rather than, yeah. oh my God, he's horrifying. He would have been just fine. Yes, yeah, spray him down before every scene so he looks a bit greasy and oozy. Whenever he trails his fingers over things, yeah, he yeah. leaves a trail of KY worm jelly tongue. or something Straight like that. Worm tongue it, from the movies. It, it, yeah. it isn't. I know we're litigating something from 1996, but it yeah, it isn't that difficult. And you do have to wonder. Mark Ryan Hagen was involved in this show. I know he only had limited involvement because studios and whatnot and and his own interests. Right. Um, but how much say would he have? How much influence would he have? How much could he have seen? Would they have said, "This is this is really cool. You're going to love this, Mark. We've we've created our Nosferatu makeup. We'd love to show you. This is what we're proudest of." And he says, "Oh, great! I'm really looking forward to it." And he goes to the studio, and it's a bald cap and earlobes. And does Mark enthusiastically say, "That's great! I love it," or does he say, "That that's terrible"? <laughs> You, you've killed my child. Right, and also some of this might be, I know there are stories and other shows of where something looks great until it gets on camera and you're too far in to change it. And so it may, it may look fantastic in real life and everyone's like, oh, this looks amazing. And then you get on camera and it's just like, oh, it's just a pasty guy in bulk cap. Give him contact lenses and fangs. Right. You know, that yeah. that's it. literally all they had to do. If they wanted to go the visibly hideous route, make his eyes a weird color and give him two odd front teeth. It might make his pronunciation strange, but that's what looping is for. Right. Thank you, because I was going to put out in Fright Night, they realize that you can't have your actor talk through fangs because yeah. it sounds comical Yeah, yep. at that point. Anything else? Uh, thanks, Doctor. Uh, um, the dramatic show off between... Frank and uh, Starkweather. Was it dramatic? Question mark. <laughs> I mean, it was rather perfunctory, wasn't it? They just had to get rid of Starkweather. To to the point that I think it would have worked better if he had just disappeared, because then you have a potentially recurring villain. Right. Uh, but I often think that about a lot of CW shows as well. They'll introduce a comic book villain with years and years of history, and rather than hedge their bets, they will uh, just kill that character after one appearance and then think four, five seasons in, shit, we'd love to bring Count Vertigo back. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we killed not only him, but also his sister. Um, when in doubt, just bring in the Condiment King. Yeah. Well, I mean, oh, it, it, it would work in a new Suicide Squad. Maybe. Calendar Man. I... Right. Um, I think I enjoyed in the third episode. There was an awful lot of times when Frankel um, Luna's actors' British accent would seep through. Oh uh, yeah, and yeah. I wasn't put off by this, although I don't think it was intentional. I felt like that was a good way of showing that you're Princess Cosmopolitan. Yeah, honestly, uh, it didn't I, I don't either. mind uh, an accent that veers all over the place when you've got undead creatures yeah exactly it's one of the few places where having a dodgy accent actually works unlike yeah. say i don't know the boys yeah. um which i'm gonna keep picking on because that accent was awful 
You say that all you want. I know that Butcher's accent is authentic because I have never lived there and I have never visited. So I, of course, realize with all my American forthright knowledge, that is 100% right. You bloody blooming wanker. Uh, the right. the uh, core blarmy Mary Poppins. The, oh my God. My so God. the once uh, Daedalus has the wig on to go back to the Tommy Wiseau room reference, he does oh, right. look like Tommy Wiseau. Tommy Wiseau, yeah. As soon as you said the room, I was like, oh my God, now I see where you're going with it. Uh, I mean, he has the same kind of pasty complexion combined with the same sort of lank hair, and somehow that is supposed to make him madly attractive to the love interest Elaine. Um, I think all that the only thing that could have made that episode almost more archetypal would be if Elaine had been blind. Because <laughs> I, I think I've seen so many TV shows uh, and movies where um, but she could, she could never, never love me, but thank goodness she has no eyesight. I mean, you could really twist it yeah. around. If you wanted to put Daedalus as an evildoer, he causes an accident that blinds her, and then, then she can love me forever. Now we see that Daedalus yeah. is actually a monster. Yes, now you know she still has a singing voice. She doesn't know that I'm horrible. I can get her. That is, <laughs> that is a dark version that would have them grappling with their humanity. That yeah. is a totally different show that you're making. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This isn't Kindred the Embrace. But, 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 but the, the other thing is, is this episode very clearly for me shows the two paths the show could have taken and it's trying to do both and it does both badly like if if the, if the entire show had been Davis and wig level of we're just going to lean into how ridiculous this is and play it straight it could have been fantastic if the show entirely showed been we're going to do vampire serial killers it could have been fantastic but I mean, instead it's you no know, these things both coexist and there is no way of reconciling them and we're not going to bother to try no it, it's like in in a in another show, I would have said that it speaks a level of confidence, but it frankly just feels like the show doesn't know what the hell it wanted. If we ever do a They Came From the World of Darkness RPG, yes, the mm -hmm. Nosferatu can offset their weakness with a wig or right. false nose. Absolutely. A pair of Groucho Marx glasses, nose and mustache. Uh, uh, a fedora and a trench coat, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but you're skipping over the the gym of this episode, the, the city editor, where they introduce uh, Kelly Rutherford or... As I know, A.K. Dixie from the Adventures of Briscoe County. Junior. Yes, yes. <laughs> and she is trying her damnedest with this part. <laughs> no. I was actually going to talk about it more because honestly, we see more Caitlin really in the next episode. But yeah, I mean, they're trying to make her the, the tough cookie investigative reporter. Um, but it's also hilarious because they, they they for a moment lampshade it because Frank goes. Aren't you a city editor? Shouldn't you be hand No, I, I have to get my hands dirty and just never explain again why the city editor is doing all of this stuff. Mm. But the show's kind of aware of like, yeah, we know this doesn't work, but we're just going to go ahead and go with it. And it's like, yeah. I respect that on some level. It's like, yeah, just own the fact that this stuff makes no sense. Just just embrace it. Pardon the part. I, I feel like, it, sorry, Chris, you go. No, go ahead, go ahead. I feel like she could have come in as a decent replacement for Frank if they'd killed him four or five episodes in. Yeah. The idea of a cop investigating the kindred isn't working out. Let's have an investigative journalist do it because it fills some of the same ground. Not only that, it's not a man, but they botch it because she is another love-struck uh, woman in in a cast of love-struck women. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. and also like if, if they had played with the whole, okay, um, Julian killed Alexandra for doing the exact same thing he is now doing with Caitlin. If they had 
done something with that because it is the exact same plot line, just gender flipped. Um, it's like that could have been cool too. It's like you know, mm. let's, let's recognize the hypocrisy of Julian Luna doing this and getting away with it just because he's the prince, right? Um, and there's a thread of that we see in the next episode, but it's not as strong as I think it could have been. Do you want to jump to the next episode? I do want to jump to the next episode. Uh, and I would also like to know how the San Francisco PD explains a headless corpse. Reasons. In a nightclub. Uh, we'll put that in the cold case file. Uh, we, we, we do know how Sleepy Hollow handles that, though, which yes. is badly. Well, they just transport <laughs> the body. I'm sure it's not far. Uh, episode six, The Rise and Fall of Eddie Fury. Lily is jealous of Caitlin and sends up P.I. to take photos of Julian and Caitlin together. Cyrus, Eddie's sire, pushes him into hiring an Asimite assassin to kill Julian so Eddie can become prince. Eddie and Cyrus stage a talk with Julian at the Haven, while Sasha, recently embraced by the Bruja, struggles with her feelings for cash. Julian visits Caitlin, but unfortunately the P.I. ends up capturing the assassination attempt against Julian on film. The P.I. tries to blackmail Lily, but she kills him and attempts to get the negatives left with Frank at the department. Manipulated by Lily, Frank then gives copies of the photos to Caitlin, and she shows them to Julian before breaking up with him. Julian confronts Lily, and Eddie exploits the schism to get her to side with him with his play for Prince. The Asimite again attempts to kill Julian, and Eddie accidentally kills the Asimite while she's disguised as Julian. Eddie makes his play with the Primogen, thinking Julian is dead. Julian comes back from the dead, confronts Eddie, and Lily kills Eddie with a Kaviti Katana, which is the most Vampire the Masquerade thing ever. Uh, This one is uh, definitive A A plot, B plot. Yeah. Uh, There's, you know, obviously a lot of TV shows do it. And it's a perfectly valid way of creating a a narrative. Uh, And we want our characters to be busy. But Lily's objective in this, I feel, is incredibly confusing and only really develops when things go wrong. Yeah. And then she is rather shoehorned into the end as a power player um, because of the relationship. But the entire PI taking photos, I'm not sure what the PI was supposed to be proving by taking those photos before the assassin showed up. Well, again, it's uh, the... establishing a relationship between the uh, owner of the news of the newspaper and the editor to like show that oh. they are journalistically dubious. That's, that, that, that's, that's quite a... subtle for me. For Kindred, the embraced. Um, this, but... I'm gonna I'm gonna put mine up front. This is the best episode of the series. Oh, it is. Oh, no, absolutely I agree. Completely agree. That's actually one of the reasons why I chose it. Um, but you're right. Like the whole time she's talking about. Because the guy's like, oh, it's you're trying to get an editor and his reporter on three. And then she mentions Julian Luna, and he almost doesn't take the job because of mm. the threat of Julian Luna's mystique. Um, so that that's that's fair, but you're right, it gets swallowed because there's so much happening in this episode. Yeah. Um, that I can see a path of Lily getting the photos and then going to Julian and saying, I'm gonna send this to the rival paper unless you drop this thing and then julian going you threatened the masquerade but that then blows up because the masquerade is actually threatened and lily's like well crap now i have to clean up my mess let me, let me murder this guy real quick and then yeah try to move forward but that gets but, lost in that yeah as a result it's a rather circular plot it doesn't mm-hmm. really get any get her anything and that can be told in a good way as mm-hmm. uh that i'm self-defeating but I don't feel it accomplishes that. Now, the Eddie Fury stuff, 
I feel, really accomplishes an excellent arc. I don't even mind the handy katana at the end. No, yeah. Well, I mean, like, uh, okay, so like, so I mean, so much happens, and in, in, in this this time, I think it's good. Like, they introduce Cyrus, hmm. and um, Cyrus does two things immediately and fantastically. A perfectly explains Eddie's you mentioned before confidence slash lack of confidence. Of course, he does because his sire is an abusive asshole. Yeah, right, and not traditionally abusive he's he's emotionally manipulative and mm. perfect and then separately as a separate prince so s- explains perfectly why cyrus gets off the hook at the end he is another prince in a different city yep um and so immediately a lot of the politics snap into place um and eddie goes from being this asshole who's been dealing with everyone's shit for five ep- or giving everyone shit for five episodes to a genuinely tragic figure of the he's now caught up in this power cyrus's power play and he's got to play his cards and in, in the middle of the episode at one point he even goes to cyrus and goes i know where this is going yeah but i gotta keep going mm-hmm. and i feel bad for eddie fiori in this i'm just like <laughs> oh oh and so that's why it's so frustrating because like this this episode that and like little things like i mentioned the conclude episode it's like if the whole show had been like this right mm. if the whole show had been we're going to watch the tragic arc of these characters and you're going to not going to realize the tragic arcs until it's almost too late. It's like, Oh, that's, that's really good. Um, and again, the actor is playing on a lot of levels because he's not playing Eddie different. Eddie's been played the exact same way. Every episode we're catching up to the actor and to Eddie Fiore. Yeah. And so it, when you contrast it with Lily, who is wildly inconsistent across these episodes it's it's jarring because it's like because she, she's going from cool manipulative thing to breaking down because her plan went awry to angry at eddie and it you can play those ranges well but it just comes across as, as sudden whereas eddie has been a pretty consistent thing and it's just, ugh, i when people talk about how bad the show is it's like yeah but this one episode almost almost makes up for it. I would say this and the finale actually work. I know we're not talking about the finale, mm-hmm. uh, but they they found their stride at the yeah. worst possible moment. Uh, Edo Ross is the actor who plays Cyrus, and he is a basically he's what you, you American folk call a character actor. He appears in quite a few... Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he appears in a heap load of TV shows and yeah. TV movies, often as villains, uh, because he has a face for it. And uh, including one of the best episodes of Moonlighting. And ah. yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> in All right, Brother, which episode of Moonlighting? Brother, Can You Spare a Blonde? That's the name <laughs> of the episode. Uh, and yeah, he's the Prince of LA. And he, you, I completely agree with you, Eddie. He comes across as an emotionally manipulative, a bully. He, he is an abuser, and and Eddie Fiore's gusto vanishes from the room as soon as Cyrus enters yes. it. Uh, and occasionally he plays up because he wants to impress his sire, but really he is just a tool to be pushed around by Cyrus. Yeah, it's, and, and there's a, just. There's this great moment when um, when he's apologizing for lack of the conclave table, right near the end, mm. um, where Eddie's like, "I'm sorry, I don't have a conclave table." You can see almost the real Eddie Fiore there, right? He's mm. a little bashful. He's like, "Crap, I've done it. I'm not entirely sure what to do now," because 
everything is pointing towards this moment, and I'm not sure what to do next. And the actors, you can see Eddie trying to build his confidence while he's talking. And again, it's just a subtle thing because the lines aren't saying it. it's all in the performance. Yeah. And so when Lily kills Eddie, I almost feel bad, right? It's like we could have maybe he could have maybe pulled out of that nosedive, but we knew that's not true because Cyrus is right there the whole time. Yeah. Well, it's not even that, but as you were saying, he played the character the same way throughout the entire course of the show. And Eddie mm-hmm. is always, this is the next step I'm going to do. And then when he gets to that step, he thinks of the next step. He's not thinking multiple steps ahead mm-hmm. while everyone else is around him. Yep. But he has enough sheer raw power that has worked for most of the show for him. Right. Um, and so, like, you look, think of all this, and it almost makes you forget this amazingly weird scene of we're going to take pictures of the prince being assassinated. And it's going to, within minutes, hit every major cast member of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> like, whatever you do, we need to murder this guy so the pictures don't get out. Okay, cool. I have murdered the guy, and now the pictures are in everyone's hands. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lily, what was the point of murdering Everyone that? but Daedalus. When Daedalus finds out, he goes on a painting tear. Right. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the master of whispers or whatever. <laughs> Why am I the last? I know. Uh, you mentioned early on that you like the most of the portrayal of the Asimite in the series. Yeah. Given the context when it was done given like the time period and everything else. Yeah. Is yeah. there a better way that it could have been executed than what we saw? Uh, in terms of sensitivity, absolutely. And probably, but in terms of this Speaking is specifically the plot, because we all yeah, know that in, in terms of the plot, wise. no, I think this is a, an excellent way to introduce something. Uh, and I know this will sound a bit, uh, I guess, of exoticism, uh, but it's a way of introducing something foreign, strange, and scary. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't personally tie it to a cultural group like the Asimites, but that's kind of embedded at the time of producing this series in what the Asimites are. The idea of having an assassin who they describe him as the Asimites are chameleons. They can shapeshift into anything. They're deadly. Did you know that? I think uh, Cyrus is saying that to Eddie, and Eddie says no. Uh, (laughs) But that's that's really good for me, uh, that a primogen in this city doesn't know what an Asimite can do. Yeah, this is yeah. going back to my thing about Mortal Kombat Conquest. The idea of this is the episode <laughs> where Noob Cybot is introduced as the shadowy assassin, like ninja. Right, everyone's scared because no one knows what Noob Cybot can do, mm-hmm. and it's the same as it's pretty much the same plot uh, as the Asimite is introduced in this episode. We the viewers do not know what the Asimite can do. And what's more, fans of Vampire the Masquerade at this time, the Asimites are still not a widely profiled clan. They have a very niche uh, part of the game, Diablerists and Assassins. And so, yeah, they're cool. They are killers. They are shapeshifters. Maybe it's over-egging it all, but I think it's a great way to introduce a new clan and then put them back on the shelf. Yeah. And I will say, you're right. Like, um, obviously, there's some exoticism and some... some potential problems in terms of how it's framed. But for 1996, they actually miss a lot of landmines, right? Like they never mention what country the Asimite comes from. They never mention this being anything other than just maybe a clan that came, for all you know, the Asimite came from Maine, right? I mean, you don't know. Um, And also um, they don't cast uh, a traditionally Middle Eastern looking character to play. It's just two white women, 
Yeah, it's it's a woman. They introduce yeah. uh, it's a woman who isn't besotted with one of the protagonists. Right. But it, it also, is a woman they introduce that they can kill. Yes, uh, sure, so right. it isn't exactly a high it's not, water mark. It's not, it's not the best. <laughs> but, I mean, this is, you know, not too many years after Transformers had a country called Carbamia. So, I mean, like, you know, take the baby steps where you can, you know. Bigotry <laughs> <sighs> um, in disguise. And also, like, they don't sexualize her, which the, the, the female ninja thing was very bad for. You actually don't see it. You don't get a clear view of the asthmite in her native form very often at all. I mean, no. yeah, she's a tight sweater and a couple of things. But, I mean, other than that, I mean, she's a turtleneck. Um, and they, they, they show her oftentimes, like, you know, in distant shots or in blurry, hard-to-see action scenes. Mm. Um, so they do a really good job of, of framing her like a monster in terms of – this is how monster storylines are generally shot in this time period. Yeah. And show her very often. Saying- as you're saying, though, from the plot perspective, and I'm only speaking of the plot, I I myself enjoyed the Asamite being there because it gave you a glimpse into possibly a bag of tricks that the yeah. princes have access mm-hmm. to that no one else does or what they can do. That adds yes. a new level of horror onto that character that we, we see Julian. And Julian's been a, a pushover. But if mm. he has access to all these things, there's no telling what he might have done if they'd gotten additional seasons. Yep, only a prince can hire an Asamite, I yeah, think is what they say it, yeah. in the show. And that, again, I don't think was ever a thing in the role-playing game. That no. is a really nice way of adding a layer of power to to the prince or yeah. whatever. Uh, and, 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 and there's a great little moment, again, with Cyrus, where um, Julian's like, you know, hey, you can take your child. And Cyrus is like, I'm just going to go. And yeah. Julian, and it's Julian, like clearly, it's like Julian knows. Julian knows one hundred percent. Cyrus hired Sasquatch to kill him, and mm-hmm. he is the fall guy. But once again, Julian was played to a corner. It's like I have to accept this bruja offering of a murder to try to, to to keep the peace. And so, like you see, this lens where it could have been a really interesting political thriller of Julian trying to navigate, and then eventually just going, okay, no. Clan war is going to happen. It just needs to go. Mm. Um, it's a shame that the, the the downside of all of this is that they do it to and they murder the one really compelling character they have on the show. And so it's like, okay, so in all of this, you show what the show could be, but the resolution also shows that you don't recognize who you really have because Eddie Fury is a long term antagonist would have been fantastic, but they pretty definitively murder Eddie Fury. You can't really bring him back very easily from this. See, I think uh, the they could have pulled the nose up because when in the finale, Titus Welliver, uh, who is a wonderful actor, I think, mm-hmm. uh, just brilliant in everything I've ever seen him in, uh, comes in as the Bruar Cameron. Uh, he has possibly even more gravitas and competence than Eddie Fury. And so that is something they could have built on. It wasn't a a done thing plot-wise. They hadn't... Uh, but uh, to go back to the moment where Eddie is shortly thereafter decapitated, when Julian... So Julian disguises himself... Uh, well, no, the Asamite is disguised as Julian. Julian mm. is hidden. The Asamite therefore gets shot by Eddie Fury. And as Eddie is commanding everyone to kiss the ring and accept him as prince, Julian enters the scene. Mm-hmm. There's an inexplicable moment where uh, 
Daedalus stands up, turns, <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and goes <laughs> like that, like uh, <laughs> invasion of the body snatchers kind of thing. It isn't quite. <laughs> he doesn't point and make a weird shriek, but yeah, he lets out this a scream. That no one else responds to. No one else right. is screaming. Why is Daedalus responding in this way? That it is just a bizarre piece of direction. But Who like, thought but, this was a good idea? It feels like, like there's a blood bond though between Daedalus and Julian. Because I mean, maybe? Daedalus is unbelievably loyal to Julian to a sickening extent. Yeah. Mm. But like to, to, to your earlier point though. If they had always directed Daedalus, Daedalus was always doing a weird out of left field thing. I think it would have sold the Nosferatu thing more, right? Like it's just, you know, this is the guy who's like, come on, I'm just gonna Where put my gun in his scene. You know, I'm gonna random scream at people. What's, what's Daedalus doing? He's just jerking off in the corner. Yeah, uh, that's just Daedalus. That's, he's the best Nosferatu we've got, and you know that most of them live in the sewer. So this wig no, no, wearing, no. randomly screaming furiously masturbating Nosferatu genuinely is the best of the bunch. So I, I will think point on out that. that as we established in the very first episode, Daedalus lives in Julian's basement. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah, along with Archon, who it's oh, like a yes. yeah, they, they all share the same house. Great. It's a Ar- frat house. Yeah, yeah that's what I want to envision. Butler. It's three primogen living in one abode. <laughs> Firebomb that place. It's and a, if Eddie was a better antagonist, that's what he would have done. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lily's often there showing her arsehole off to everyone. Who, Boom, who problem like, solved. Like a proud cat. Uh, <laughs> I think we're moving into our final thoughts now. Um, Lily, Lily but, is a proud cat. But we're, we're skipping that Lily goes to Frank and seduces? Pity? Yeah him into something yeah they're trying yeah. to build a new relationship for frank into the show with and again ugh. like it's just not working right like um i i think the actor playing lily frankly just got some bad dialogue because like you see glimmers of it could have been cool but she's just so badly written because again it's mid-90s Aaron Spelling, so the woman is only their field of interest that's frustrating mm-hmm. but playing off frank it just really reinforces that He's just not a romantic lead at all. Um, no, throwing in uh, relationships and he's just not working. And by this episode, it is very clear that he is an also ran protagonist because right. you know he doesn't have a great deal to do. He doesn't need to be in this episode at all. And I mean, this isn't the only episode that he doesn't need to be in. And they obviously feel obliged to have him there because he's the first one in the credits. I imagine. Um. The, yeah, the, and I can only imagine if the actor playing Lily, uh, and another name I do not know, that our prep is always wonderful, clearly. Um, (laughs) uh, If she was told, okay, Lily, this episode, you're going to be starting a potential romantic liaison with Frank. I can only imagine she goes back to a trailer. And feels like a wrestler who's just been partnered with some... <laughs> you know, you've just been given a storyline. You're going to be putting over The Miz. So, really? My, my, my job is to... I, I've got nothing against The Miz. The Miz is a good entertainer. But 
my job is to put him over. He's supposed to win. So, what, I'm just a prop for Frank now? So, no wonder she phoned it in. I mean, I'd be looking for another job to see if Melrose so, Place um, is still going. What, why are we talking about this? I just want to specifically mention uh, Lily. I think her actress is Stacy something starting with an H. I don't remember her last name. Um, but know. that scene of her in the elevator is probably one of the most iconic scenes from the series mm. of oh, yeah. her looking up with the kill. And I wanted to make sure that we gave that credit because if you Google it, you're going to frequently see that little gif of her doing that, which is yeah. a great establishing shot. No, again, like, like, I mean, she's one of those people that like, I mean, uh, uh, clearly the camera loves her. Like she, she looks great on scene. I mean, she, she has some range there. Um, the one thing, I, as I was looking up, I was looking up the actor's name as well. Um, I, 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 on the Kudra the Embraced Wiki, uh, and I found out Lily's last name. Oh, Lily Langtree. I'm like, what? Really? really? This is supposed to be Lily Langtree? Did I? How did wow. I miss that? Wow. No, well, okay. you know these wikis, you can't trust them. That's that's an sure. ENAA Watson piece of sabotage there. They, 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 they may have made that up, but still, I was just like, <laughs> I was not. No, uh, but you're right. No, uh, this this episode, and it's leading to more, at least my final thoughts, which is that um, this episode has that iconic moment, has the great confrontation with uh, Eddie and Julian, and shows that I argue that there was potential here. It was massively squandered. Um, there were a lot of, of bad decisions. Some maybe could have been made if the show was made later. Some probably should never made at all. Uh, but suffice to say is that this could have been a decent show. Uh, and it's just digging through and finding those, those little gems in a lot of shit is sometimes frustrating. But it, this is one that's always kind of stuck with me. Like I, I've always weirdly defended the show. And then when I go back and actually watch it, oh no, no, there, there's a lot here that's a problem. But it's mm. never... Like I said at the start, it's never the stuff that people complain about online, right? It's like, yes, they all have the same disciplines. Okay, but do you really need to get into clan stuff disciplines in a no. vampire show? No. It's like people who complain about the Drizzt de Word and R.A. Salvatore novels and say, well, a ranger shouldn't be able to do that. Oh, fuck off. Right. You know, it's, it's fiction. Right. Uh, you summon a wolf from a dimensional plane. Just get over it. Yes. Uh, I disagree, though. Um, so my final thought. Okay, go ahead. I, you know, I've worked on Vampire the Masquerade for a long time, as you know, mm-hmm. as as of you, Eddie, and I know Chris, uh, you and you enjoyed your time on it, mm-hmm. and I, I very I much enjoyed working with you. Uh, you brought some wonderful material to the game. And thank you, by the way, for not catching some of my jokes that I snuck into the book that I think you referenced later after it had been published. <laughs> Oh, maybe I did. Uh, I like putting jokes in games. Uh, Eddie hates it. Uh, <laughs> my uh, my feeling when I got to the end of this watch along was that uh, Vampire the Masquerade and more broadly the World of Darkness is not a property that can sustain a TV show and still feel like the tabletop role-playing game. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think you can have a Vampire the Masquerade TV show that doesn't feel like Vampire the Masquerade, the role-playing game, or Werewolf, or any other World of Darkness game. But I think that, and this will often come up with adaptations of any media, video games especially, video game movies, the vast majority of people who want to see the show 
are fans of the game. Therefore, they will be disappointed with what's on screen because it doesn't match up to their vision of the game. So while there is a highlight in this series in the form of the rise and fall of Eddie Fury, and I didn't mind the stark weather stuff in the cut episode, mm-hmm. those gems in the turds are few and far between. Sure. I, I don't think you can judge everything based on Kindred the Embraced. You could. Uh, there will be people who say, "Oh, if they threw a Game of Thrones budget, and if they, uh, you know, had um, mainstay HBO writers, hell, everything, HBO, 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 give it all right. to Vampire the Masquerade, you'll make something good." I am sure that you would. I am yeah. sure that you would make a good TV show, but I don't think you could make a Vampire the Masquerade TV show that is at all like the role playing game, because the role playing game does not translate as written to purely visual media. Now, there will be people that disagree with that, especially fans of things like LA by Night, other actual play stuff, but even they would not work performed as TV shows. They work as communal, improvised storytelling experiences. Yeah, and and, I mean, there have been a few comic books of Vampire the Masquerade, but I don't think any of them have done particularly well. Yeah, so I, I feel Kindred of the Embraced could have continued and strengthened in the second season, if they had drifted further and further away from the source material. Mm. The more they would feel inclined to call upon elements or feel shackled to elements, I think the weaker it would have become. And I feel almost like if Kindred the Embraced hadn't had the Vampire the Masquerade attachments to begin with, it probably would have done better. Um, But yeah, when you immediately shoot 75% of your audience in the foot by saying, yeah, this isn't the show you want. You are basically cutting your own throat out of the gate. <laughs> um, so yeah, I came away from it, as I said, not not happy. Uh, it was generally, uh, it was what I expected, but I was, I guess, disappointed to not find more things I enjoyed from a quality perspective rather sure. than from a mockery perspective. Right, right. Uh, it was fun because it was bad, right. and that's not a good way to make a TV show. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? Chris? I guess my final thoughts are going to be: it was a well-executed '90s television show. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, I have two very distinctive thoughts. Though, first is that on one level, I agree with Matthew, but mm-hmm. I agree with you because. Vampire itself is a role-playing game and every single table is different. Yep. So it is impossible to emulate that in any form or fashion. Yep. Now, my other point is I do believe that if you take the role-playing game for itself with a group of writers, some of them that love the game and people that make television, you could make a true kindred, the embraced show that's reflective of the game and incorporate all that material. It goes back to something I think I mentioned a lot on the show that it comes down to the writers and their ability to execute that vision. Mm. But it takes an amount of work that is rarely done. For instance, we can get amazing shows like Deadwood. And Deadwood is not a show with a lot of violence or action that people want to look for. It's a show based on character drama and internal conflicts and everything else. Mm-hmm. You could do that with Vampire. Yeah. And yeah. given the time that we're in now with all the different networks, I believe there is one that could potentially execute that show and doesn't need a Game of Thrones budget. Right. You can use like 
super speed, as we saw from the Flash, is not hard to emulate on a very cheap budget <laughs> or super strength. Yeah. But it is the writing that comes with it. Then you need the actors that'll do that piece of mm. it. So it, I believe it is possible. And I still hope that one day we'll get that 10 season show that'll come out of it. Right. Focused around, I'm going to bring it back home. The true bruja. Boom. Out, baby. Uh, Boom. <laughs> Chris, you can't make Vampire Doctor Who. I keep, we've talked about this. <laughs> I think the way, most of the, the, most of the way the, uh, most of the actors acted as if they were true bruja in this uh, <laughs> show. Uh, so, um, thank you, Matthew, for coming on and, and uh, uh, tolerating this show for, for our ed- education and uh, entertainment. It was that. a delight. Thank you very much for having me and allowing me to speak so much about the pilot. <laughs> if people wanted to find you online and talk to you about uh, your Vampire the Masquerade work or indeed your opinions about Daedalus's hair where would they find you? Oh, they can find me on MatthewDawkins.com I occasionally operate on the hell site of X Twitter as <laughs> at DawkinsMP and I'm on YouTube as The Gentleman Gamer uh, where you can find a bevy of Kindred the Embraced memes in a minute or less <laughs> or less um, and uh, Chris, where can I find you before we talk about what we're going to do next episode? If you're looking for me, the best place is going to be the Darker Hue Discord. If you want to buy my work, I, th- I think IPR is still sitting on all those books I mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, otherwise, if you really want, there's also a little book I made called Harlemon Bound that Chaosium has a second edition of. Good, you check that out. Um, and uh, before I get into my stuff, um, uh, this is the end of our next season. Or, or sorry, of our horror season. Um, we are going to do something else for a minute uh, because uh, as of this episode, uh, we now have 100 episodes of Genreless. Uh, so, uh, by the time you're hearing this, we'll have already recorded it, but um, we are going to be doing a live episode on the Darker Hue Discord. Chris and I are going to ask each other questions. If other people have questions for us. Um, we're going to do kind of an interview question. I already have my questions written. Chris does not know what they are. Uh, and it's, I look forward to some of these answers. Um, but <laughs> Likely surprising no one, I have not written down any of my questions. And <laughs> I may do it before we go in, or I may do what Chris is known for. You make it up as you I go was, along. I 100% that's going to happen. <laughs> that is my magic. It's my gift. Um, it's my curse. Do we want to announce our next season now or wait till the 100 episode to do it? I think we wait to the 100th episode. Okay, then you'll have to listen to us next week to find out what our next season's going to be. Uh, but until then, you can contact, find me on most social media sites as Pugsteady. That's P-U-G-S-T-E-A-D-Y. That's also my website, Pugsteady.com. Uh, but the best place to find me is either on the Onyx Path Discord with Matthew, um, where I'm often there talking about our sister podcast, the Onyx Pathcast. Um, or you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord, uh, generally harassing Chris with what Big Finish has on sale this week. Because um, uh, we're both big Doctor Who fans. Um, but uh, so with that, uh, thank you for hanging out for us, Matthew. Thank you for all of y'all listening for October as we had this fun with the, the horror genre. And we'll talk to you next week as we celebrate 100 episodes of this nonsense. See you then. Be seeing you. <laughs>